We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This is the Gator Nation Football Podcast with your hosts, Alan Williams and James DiVergilio. Now we know we're just a bunch of average stiffs. Welcome to the Gator Nation Football Podcast. I'm your host, James DiVergilio, alongside the man, the myth, the legend, Alan Williams. We are presented to you by BetUS. Alan, it's cold outside. It's fall. Florida barely beat Samford. How are you feeling? Not great, Bob. Uh, it. I feel great about my life in general. It's funny. I got a lot of feedback on my Dan Mullen optimism last week. I'm sure I'm going to have to eat all of that this week. But, you know, it's always interesting. It's always fun to talk about it, whether it's up or whether it's down. That's for sure. And talk about it, we will. We've got a big show on tap for you today. We're going to talk very little football analytically and a whole lot more about coaching. We're going to dive deep into the three-year test. We'll talk about who our head coaching candidates are, and we're going to finish the show with some basketball talk with our insider and correspondent, as you called him, Alan, the illustrious Justin Seitz. A lot of good stuff going on with basketball, getting a big win over Florida State. Finally, finally, finally got one of those. So at least some positive news over the weekend. As always, if you like the content on this podcast, follow us on social media, sub to our YouTube channel for film reviews each and every week. And Become a patron on Patreon where you can join the GNFP patron family by giving a dono to Alan and myself for our efforts to bring you this very show. Our weekly shout out to Be Red and Bama Shane for helping us bring you this content. Thank you very much. It, they are just invaluable to both of us. And some new patrons coming in with a small dono, an annual small dono, is the artist known as Slayerzing. Welcome aboard. A level up from Patrick Moore who was going to level up every single time the Gators won. They weren't winning a lot, so he waited and did it You know when they won against Sanford, but he's calling this the dumpster fire level up, which is appropriate. And then we have another level up from Boom Headshot, who's been crushing it this season with the stop the GT counter. Thankfully, Sanford didn't run a lot of the GT counter, but then again, they didn't need to. Uh, so there's that. <laughs> and on the XXL donos, we have a new dono from Joe Morrison. Welcome aboard, Joe. And sitting on the throne is the big homie who continues still a subpar reign but you know what he might be the reason for a change at the coaching spot which is really 
what I want and need. So perhaps that's great. Okay, let's discuss some Dono Legends here. Are you ready? Always ready. Do it. One breath. Let's go. Okay, well, we're going to do the one breath challenge again. Ready? Here we go. Lil Payton, Constantine, Double O, Alexander Leventhal, Diego Rivera, Bill Hood, James Newton, Nathan Jeter, Stosh Me, Bobby Boucher, Frank Marcellisi, Mike Wechter, Tim Kane, Nicholas Isaac, Mike, Mark Jackson, Tim Hondrick, James Truitt, Gus O'Leary, Brad Wilson, Mark Mitchell, Chris Folsom, Dr. Matthew Galloway, Aaron Jeter, Jason Landry, Michael Reeves, Jason Johnson, Zach Sparks, Cooper and Kylie Craig, Mark Rubenstein, Tyler Romero, and Craig Scarado crushed it. Did you do that in one breath for I real? Did. You're not even out of breath. I I felt like I laughed last time, maybe, so that was what got me. Man, that's incredible. That was real fast. Yeah, but thank you to all. Those I felt people. like you had breath left. That's, I did. That's fantastic. Well, see if you if you also want to the small victories. Yeah, if you want to join the Dono Legend category and make this list longer, so we can't do it in one breath. Uh, you know, please be our guest. All right, Alan, tell us about the uh, the score our score <laughs> predictions in this game. The Gators win. 70 to 52. It's a good basketball score. And it was the basketball score. I think the, I think the Gators won 71 to 55. They did. Basically the basketball score. Yeah. I mean, people were making that joke and then it actually happened. Truly, truly unbelievable. You know, in some sense, weirdly, if you just cover up the name of the team, this is a great game. If you're playing like LSU of 2019, this is like an all-time <laughs> that would be an all Yes, you're right. You're right. You'd be like, you know what? It doesn't get better this. Stamp it. Send it to the Hall of Fame. However, we were playing the four and five Sanford Bulldogs. You and I predicted, well, I predicted 45-17. You did 55-13. Uh, they scored 42 in the first half, which, you know, modern football doesn't sound like that much. But it was the most scored by any team ever in a half in the swamp. Just let that sink in a little bit. That is unreal. For anybody who wants to minimize that kind of output. And Sanford's a competent offensive team. Dan Mullen like, gave him a little bit of credit. I'll give him some credit too. They have some nice guys. But that should tell you the level of just amazement that everyone else has. And rightly so. That stat alone tells the entire story incredible stat especially when you consider that although Sanford's put up a lot of points this season Chattanooga the juggernaut that is Chattanooga's defense was able to hold them to just 13 points a week or two before either way again it's it's staggering Alan to think that another bad record belongs to Dan Mullen but that's an unbelievable one for all of the studded star-oriented players and teams and coaching staffs that have come into the swamp throughout the years that Samford will now be the one that holds the points against Florida record for probably a long, long time, if maybe not forever, is incredible. So I was trying to put this into context for someone who doesn't really follow football or doesn't understand like FBS, FCS kind of stuff. I was like, there's not a player on their team that Florida would have ever considered recruiting. Doesn't mean they wouldn't take one of them now. Montreal Washington. Certainly we're Montreal we're Washington looking could, at you. could play for the Gators. But coming out of high school, nobody would have even been on the Gators radar. Nobody who committed to Florida would have ever considered going to Sanford. And so theoretically you could play your third stringers who never play and they should be able to out talent everybody on the team. Now again, 
Sanford is not like a dumpster fire of a team. They would actually be competent theoretically. If they were playing Bama's third stringers, they you know they could do some stuff. But what was happening on Saturday? I would say it was like unthinkable. But I think we could have all imagined at least in some version. So let me ask you this question. How surprising was that result to you? And that is what is interesting is it it, it should be shocking. It is very surprising. And it was very Mm -hmm. surprising. And it's still very surprising. But, but when we said this after South Carolina, it's somehow simultaneously not surprising. Because Florida's team, as we've said, for a couple of years now, doesn't have a championship mentality on defense, does not pay attention to the details, is prone to giving up easy plays and completions. And they played a team in Sanford who had a very competent quarterback who was extremely accurate, who got into the flow of the football game. And they had, which you have to have against Florida, is one transcendent receiver you'd like to throw to because Florida's incapable of ever covering a team's best consistent receiver. And they made Florida pay. But it should be shocking and unacceptable on every level for an FCS team of this caliber to ever, ever play a very competitive game against you, where if it were not for a few plays here and there in this game, Alan, they could have won. Make no mistake about it, although we're not going to deep dive into the schematics, the X's and O's, or even the film review of this game, I reviewed all of it for you, don't worry. In the second half, there were just a few plays where Sanford had like four on twos, three on ones, plays they were hitting for huge yards in the first half, They just didn't execute because one Florida guy happened to make a hero play. It wasn't like Florida's defense was all of a sudden lined up correctly. So Florida escaped this game with a win at home despite scoring almost every time they had the ball. That's completely unbelievable, and it should be totally shocking. But it's not because when your program starts to nosedive like Florida's has, nothing is shocking. And that's how it goes in a sport like football, which is heavily momentum-based and individual player contribution-based. It doesn't take much for the wheels to sort of fall off effort-wise. And then a team that's hungry, they can make you pay. So, yeah, had this result, let's say we played them the week after we played Alabama, it almost would have been unparalleled in the history of college football, right? And it still is in some sense, but narratively it would have made no sense. But as each successive week comes along and coming off that South Carolina game, then that becomes somewhat you know, believable that it would happen. And this was just an extension of that South Carolina game. So it wasn't like totally out of the blue. Now, again, I with each data point, you don't realize how far the team is falling. Right? Because you don't you only see them once a week. We're not in practice. We don't understand really what's going on. But the level of effort on defense, which we haven't talked about a lot, was very, 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 very low. For whatever reason, I don't I can't pretend to be inside each of them's mind. But the defensive line was essentially like you just the ball would snap. They just stand up, seemingly. Rashad Torrance, who we've loved, looks bad. Everybody looks bad. Everybody looks bad. And there's really no excuses. There's not a thing you could come up with to be, go. Okay, well, this is why this could or, or should have happened. But here we are. Well, I did call for a mutiny. By the defense, uh, although I called for more of like a, a walkout, not a hurt your own future self by putting right bad when stuff you play like film. that, it makes you look bad too. When the NFL Correct. looks at you, they don't, they don't, they may take some of that to analysis, but that also just shows up on your character calendar as well. Yeah, and to be fair on film, most of the players looked like they were giving a a, a, 
a normal level of output and effort. But as you mentioned, there were also times where that's not true. So it's not like all 11 players were out there hot dogging it, but at get, you know various portions of the game, people were not playing football soundly effort-wise. And that's unusual is a lot of times Florida gave good effort and just were so unsound defensively. Let's talk about the offense just really quickly because this is stuff that, again, this is expected stuff. This is what should happen when you play an FCS opponent who has a horrifically bad defense, even in their own conference. Allen, 717 yards of offense for Florida, 253 rushing, 464 passing, 7 of 11 on third down. Florida did get stopped on a fourth down early in the game. They had a several crucial third and long conversions when this game could have gotten way out of hand. It could have been 49 to 20 something, and Emory converted. Emory himself goes 28 for 34, 464, six touchdowns, a rushing touchdown, 86 rushing yards. Definitely video game numbers from his best game of the year, of course, by far. Pierce a good game, gamble with a great game. Uh, Better athletes out there making them pay. Essentially, what Florida got out of this game was what was expected. Typically, you would play your starters for a quarter and a half in this game, maybe two, and then they wouldn't have numbers like this. But they had to play the entire game because it was a football game the entire time. That's the caveat, right? So Emory's got some press for the stats he put up. But no Florida quarterback has ever played that many meaningful stops against the FCS opponent. Other than Skyler Morningweg against Georgia Southern. And he was part of the reason we lost. But he should never have seen the field for Florida in any kind of, like, plan. Right? So, yeah. I mean, if Tim Tebow plays the entire game against some of these cupcake opponent, opponents, he could put up triple the yards. Yeah, you can do whatever you want. That's the point. When you play in F- FCS school and you're a program like Florida... So, I mean, nice job that you didn't screw it up, but that's kind of what should have happened unless you're playing like an FCS team who just has a crazy good defense and they preventing problems. That's not Sanford, though. And you saw them, you know, put up a fight, sometimes get us into some situations, but even you saw the overwhelming athleticism of even a guy like Kamori Gamble, who's not, you know, across the SEC, wouldn't you be like, that guy's a freak, but he's dominant out there. So any kind of like, oh, we did well. Well, of course we did well. That's what's supposed to happen. Correct. And there is one piece of discussion that we should we should embark on. And that is one Anthony Richardson. He plays the last three snaps of the game in which he just hands the ball off and then is taken, obviously, out because the game's over. Thoughts on this? Does this make sense? Can you understand this decision and move so apparently he would have gone in slightly earlier, but he asked for Emory to stay in to break the record. I think that should go to his credit. But on the other side, if he's healthy enough to play three snaps, why is he not starting the game? And then we're going to get to this a little bit, but Emory is apparently starting next week. So I'll, I'm going to hold my ammo for that one, but that just is another thing that goes what we're doing in this game. Obviously, we didn't need him to play and win this game like normally this is a game you could play your backup and do everything that we did and that's fine but everything narratively on this forward team is backwards so that made no sense yeah at this point i could say several things all of which all of you listeners can already guess so i'm not going to say it you clearly know exactly how i feel about that situation and the entire situation and i will also save my ammo for when we discuss emory being a starter 
in our next game. Um, we'll try for what it's worth to explain the decisions that Dan Mullen has made and is continuing to make right here until the end with the quarterback spot with any logic, which is nearly impossible with Dan Mullen, but we will try. All right, let's put the defense defensively. Great day for Florida. They give up 416 yards passing, 114 rushing. They allow seven of 15 on third down, one of three on fourth down, and Liam Welsh, Liam Vic Welsh. 33 of 52 for 400 yards, three touchdowns, 64 yards rushing, and two rushing touchdowns, along with the sensational Montrell Washington, who returned a kick for a touchdown, took a handoff for a touchdown, and then also caught, I don't know, 35 passes in this game and just dominated Florida all over the football field. Welch did look really nice. He's a good player. He's a good quarterback. Take nothing away from Stanford in general. Great, it's really nice. Great work. But again, they're not a record-setting offense in the FCS, right? This is not a team that's just an offensive juggernaut. They're not doing anything that's totally unique. They're not a triple option team or running some kind of crazy Coastal Carolina kind of offense, right? Those numbers are staggering when you put them up against the Floyd Davis. And even 7-15 on third down, the first half they were – just lightning, right? And a couple times they weren't even getting the third down because they were scoring in huge chunks. Those numbers don't really even tell you the story of of how it looked like on the field. Um, it it was kind of wild. Looked like Florida didn't know what to do about anything. No, they didn't. All. They didn't. Now, C. Rob, right? Christian Robinson, who I obviously aired my feelings about last week, being promoted to be the DC. Has his debut. Could not have gone worse. I mean, at all. Could not have gone worse. And it's not surprising because, again, the most frustrating thing for me on this podcast, Alan, is, of course, I don't have all the answers. You don't have all the answers. But we try to use evidence. Our our takes try to use data and evidence. And if you looked on the football field, based upon the film, for all the years that Christian Robinson has been here, the linebackers have been horrifically bad. They don't play right. They don't fill gaps correctly. They don't play zone defense right. And he gets promoted. And then the entire defense looked like the linebacking core. Completely lost. We didn't do a ton of things totally different, but we did do things differently. We thought it was a great idea on a lot of snaps to basically drop defensive linemen all over the place. Like that was our strategy. We're playing Madden and we're going to drop anybody back. Doesn't matter who it is. We're sending Carter off the line. We're sending all these guys back into zones, generally guarding no one because they weren't running routes into those areas. And it's just, you're just thinking, what is happening? At times we're playing with just two down linemen and we're sending linebackers in. I mean, these things make no sense against an overmatched opponent. We were not ready for most snaps, even less so than we've had in the past. We had two players frequently in the same place. We blew a million zone coverages. We just don't do things correctly. It's an uncoordinated defense. And and obviously, again, another nail in the Dan Mullen coffin that you choose to do this, and this is the result that you get. And not that Florida's defense is going to come out and be amazing, but the fact that it was demonstrably worse is so really rough day for Christian Robinson. This is wild. So you, I think, correctly called this, right? I think this would be the most logical outcome, right? I wanted to reserve judgment because I wanted to say, let Christian Robinson be his own guy. I can't totally put him in jail because he works for Todd Grantham. But when you have a terrible Grantham defense and you appoint his number one just, you know, lieutenant, as you said, most likely you're going to get what you got but worse. 
I don't think you even said but worse, but but worse. It was hard to imagine it could be any worse until you saw this piece of evidence, right. which was so, worse. Now, this is what the result was. So, you know what? You have to let it play out. I think we could. you rightly criticized Mullen for doing it. I didn't want to pre-criticize him. Now, again, if this is like an ultimate hire, if you're like, hey, we get to the end of the season and we make this hire, it's like, man, this better work out because this seems like an obviously stupid decision. And then what the results were, it was obviously stupid. So I wanted I wanted Christian Robinson, hey, guess what? Maybe the whole time he's like, you know what? Everything that Todd's doing, I would do differently. Well, that's not the case. He basically just took some of the excesses of Todd Grantham and multiplied them. I, this is what feels kind of crazy. It feels like you could take any... Body who has a competent understanding of defense, who does it professionally, and that you know the average guy, and just give them say, hey, let's just do these things, and it would have been better. You actually had to actively make it worse as a coach, and that's hard to do. And then we didn't change anybody personnel on defense; they just kept running out the same guys who were not performing. Now, in the second half, obviously, they tremendously limited that in terms of like the overall production. They scored 10 points in the second half. Anything different in the second half? I mean, some people are surmising maybe Paul Pasqualani is doing more things. Maybe Dan Mullen gets involved. Any Is there any evidence that are just Sanford just didn't play as well? No, just, just Sanford did not play as well. The looks were the same, like I mentioned. I'm not going to do an extensive film review this week. I'm going to probably put you know five plays out there that kind of show you the, the clown show that it was. But in the second half, Sanford was down, I think, a touchdown early or late in the third quarter, early fourth quarter, down two scores, but they had the ball. They're driving. It's third down and two, and they, get a, they have a four on two. They have four receivers on two Florida defenders, and Elam just makes a hero play. He just guesses it's going to be a screen, and he goes there. But if it's completed... That might be a 50-yard game on third down and two because Florida's not lined up. So nothing changed. Uh, Perkins did start, which was great to see, and played rather terrible if he was in zone coverage. It's hard to blame him because who knows what's going on. Florida players were rarely ever dropped in the right zone. And really, this has been the way it's been for us right all year long, right, Alan? Florida's defense is not about blaming the players because when so many players are consistently doing the wrong thing, they're just, they're not, they don't know what they're supposed to be doing. They're not taught correctly. The communication is not clear. They're not sure where they're supposed to go. So all the things I've mentioned all year long were true in this game as well. As you mentioned, only worse. That's all you really need to know. And again, for Dan Mullen, another bad CEO level decision, which we mentioned another out of touch leadership move, a anti-strategic decision, if you will. And, it almost got him a loss, and it certainly got him the worst half of defensive football in Florida history in his own stadium. So that's, again, if you're looking for just catastrophic failures as a leader, and B-Red's got a note in here where he's like, it was C-Rob's defense. How much flack does Mullen get for this? All of it. All of it. All of it. If we can know from the sidelines that C-Rob is the number one Grantham disciple whose unit's been terrible, and you then promote him because presumably he's been on the defensive staff the longest, which is why I think most people think he did it, Alan. You don't get it. So just another example, obviously, of things not being had. All right, on special teams, we give up the obvious kick return touchdown where Washington makes a couple little kind of moves navigating through, does not get touched. 
He does finish with my favorite celebration of all time, the sprinter finish. Anytime I see someone cross the end zone line and give the head duck with the arms back, I personally love it. So good for you, Montrell. But again, special teams this year has been anything but special. Missing extra points, missing field goals, giving up kick return touchdowns, etc. It showed its head in this game as well. Anything else you want to add from the defensive takeaway? No. All right, let's get into the good stuff. Now we're back into the AD corner two weeks in a row because we teed it up last week thinking we were going to have a nice discussion about the three-year test and some other stuff, but things may have changed for you, Alan. Given what you saw on Saturday, given the quotes that have come out, given things that have happened here, and I'll lead you with this quote, calling a win a disappointment is disrespectful to the game, said Dan Mullen after the game, followed by what was a, a ruckus dance party in the locker room which made the rounds on social media. Given all of these new data points, are you still on the 51% keep Mullen side or have you shifted away from that? Uh, Yes, I've shifted quite far, right? So let me just, we'll get to the locker room stuff maybe in a minute. You know, watch Dan Mullen's press conference. All of these things, like if you're in a really big winning program, you, they don't even make, coverage or maybe they're minor blips but dan doesn't seem to realize his house is on fire or he's trying to put out the fire with i don't know not water (laughs) i don't know what he's what his plan is to put out the fire but it's not working he doesn't understand the situation seemingly or maybe he does and his attempts to mitigate it are just not coming across at all so the 51 percent is like you know, we're coming off that South Carolina game where it's, everything feels like now it's up in the air. Pre-South Carolina game, things are not going well, but they're not collapsing. The foundation isn't crumbling as evidently. I think there's – everything I said last week I think still stands. I think Mullen is a championship-level OC, and if you surround him the right pieces and you're not getting this higher fire cycle, that's your best path forward. But with this extra data point now, I, it changes – more of what we understand about this team and the direction it's heading. And I don't know it can be salvaged. Maybe it can, but I wouldn't bet on it. Now I have to go, I need to make a move. And so it's funny because I, I do think there's something different between a win and a loss, right? If Florida loses this game, I don't think Dan Mullen makes it out of the weekend. So losing is better than winning. But this is not something that you go, yeah, we're really excited about. I think you can acknowledge, hey, we won the game and we're thankful for that. We've got a lot to fix, right? That's a pretty simple narrative to put out there. Trying to like mask it in sunshine and being like, I don't know what you guys are talking about. We won the game. We're always going to be excited about winning the game. Again, no ability to read the room and understand people's reactions and how that's going to come across. Yeah, it's childish, but it's also anti-championship mentality. A champion does not celebrate barely beating a wildly overmatched opponent. That is not how any champion thinks at any point in time because what they know is that kind of performance means they will never be a champion. It's just unacceptable. It doesn't mean that you're the Grinch and you hate everything, but it does mean that you're letting your team know, I'm here because I want to win championships, and so should you. And that kind of effort, that kind of detail-oriented play, will never win one. And if you're satisfied with that, you're a loser and not a champion. Or at best, you're mediocre. And that's not what we're going to be here. But none of those things are ever said at Florida. None of those things are ever uttered by Dan Mullen. For all the talk of Gator standard in year one and year two, it was always, look how close we are. What, you're mad we lost Alabama? We're within what, two points? We're within what, four points? We're getting closer. 
So to me, this Florida football program under Dan Mullen is best described as an iceberg. Most people saw a little tip protruding out of the water. Eh, that doesn't seem so great, but everything else seems good. Look at the winds, look at what's happening. But beneath the surface, Alan, there was a ginormously deep and large iceberg. And now that the water has receded, we see just how significant these issues are. And as you mentioned, no one can ever see those things because we're not there every single day. But obviously, the iceberg is is very, very large. And the program itself is being weighed all the way down with it. And it's not going away anytime soon. It's getting larger. And that brings me to this comment. The Emory Jones starting the game announced already, right, for Missouri. To me, just logically, seems like Dan Mullen is out. He knows he's out. And he's going to go down with the ship with the guy that he recruited first because he's a loyal guy and he very much values loyalty. That's his number one thing above a championship. And it's sort of like, hey, you know what? I'm going out of here. Who knows what my mentality is towards Florida and what's happening, but I'm going to let Emory Jones finish out this season because I recruited him first and that's what's going to happen. And we'll let someone else deal with what's going on. That's the only logical thing I can figure out. Do you have any thoughts on perhaps some other narrative that may exist why Emory Jones is going to play and why a guy like Anthony Richardson Allen gets thrown in against the best defense of the modern era in Georgia that causes some Florida fans very short-sightedly to act like he is the same as Emory or worse, which is ludicrous based upon watching them play. And then essentially Richardson just isn't going to see the field anymore after that. That's hard to reconcile. Right, and this feels like extreme mismanagement there have been like excuses along the way right there's been situations circumstances that have prevented Richardson from playing right so even in this game I I didn't know how healthy his knee was as Florida obfuscates injuries you know there's no way to know but now here now we've everything is clear he said Anthony Richardson is 100% healthy and he's not going to play him that's the first time really he's been able to say that year all year long. But I think it's the opposite. I think he think he's doing everything he can to preserve his job. And I think he's going ultra conservative. And for some reason he thinks Emory is a better option. I don't think he's saying, you know, I don't care. I'm on my way out. I think he thinks this is actually the better option. And that's why he needs to go. It's not because uh, he's doing something weird or he's too conservative is he doesn't understand the situation in front of him and he doesn't understand the way out of it. Interesting. Interesting. That's funny. I'm on the other Island where I think he knows exactly what he's doing. I think he knows he's out. I think he's already mentally quit. He's already, this is sort of like, uh, you know, when you know, you're going to break up with someone, whether it's a, it's a business partner, you know, it's a, it's a boyfriend or girlfriend. It's a friendship. When you know, the end is there. Your heart's already sort of out, but you have to find out how to handle it. You're coming to terms with it. There's some sadness. There's some excitement for the future, whatever there is. I think Dan Mullen is there. He's winding it down. He's ending his tenure. He's mentally getting into a space of what's next. And he's like, you know what? That disconnects me from the future of the program and winning. And I want to go out how I want to go out. And I want to be known as a loyal guy. He keeps saying that. He said that when, why do you fire Grantham on those guys now? Well, because, you know, I'm, I'm a loyal guy. I believe in this stuff. And I, I just think we're not going to know the answer to this question probably ever, Alan. But I think to me, 
I'm glad you illustrated the other side. I think those are the two sides. Either A, he's scrambling to keep his job. He's doing all he can. I just feel like with all these quotes, with all of the stuff he's now saying, the players were wildly celebrating every touchdown in this game. To me, it's just like, I'm out of here. Screw you guys. I'm going to play the way I want to play, and I'm done. And you can deal with whatever's left over. That's what it feels like. Could be wrong. Well, it feels like I think the reason he's hyping up the positivity is that he's trying to combat the negativity with that. that, Could be true. With artificial celebration. And, hey, we won. What are you talking about? But that just doesn't pass muster. I don't think he realized that. And I I think this is the problem. Yeah, either way, right? Either narrative is horrible. Either one is not championship. And either one results in him having to go. So that is uniform. But I don't know that he is definitely fired. There's yeah, a lot of conflicting information. Sure. We don't know that. For, to be clear, Alan and I have no right. idea if he's definitely fired or staying. We don't. We're just speculating based upon his actions where he's at in the process. I, I mean, I do think if Florida wins these last two games, then there's a chance that he stays and there's a chance that he goes what, either, in either direction, right? The problem is if you are getting waxed by Sanford, beating even very mediocre, that's to be kind, Missouri and Florida State teams feel like a gargantuan task. Yeah, Missouri team that just beat South Carolina, which is a team that beat you like a drum. But on top of it, it doesn't matter. I think what you said is true, Alan. At this point in time, if you're Scott Strickland, again, friend of the program, Scott Strickland, there's only one choice to be made, and that is to fire Dan Mullen. There's no, there's no underlying reason that you can even, in my opinion, possibly keep Dan Mullen without, here you go, Alan, Without Scott Strickland doing the same thing Dan Mullen did last year by keeping Grantham. If Strickland keeps Mullen, he has then essentially become Mullen by keeping his own version of Grantham, which is Dan Mullen. And if Scott Strickland's a wise man, which I think he is, despite a lot of the heat coming after him, I think he's going to know that and say, I have to make a move here. Even though Dan's my friend, we've had history, I cannot hitch my wagon to a current Grantham in my life. I have to let this go. Now we will see. Now with this, now with this, Alan... That background in the mirror, both you and I are aligned. Dan Mullen has to go. He does not have what it takes to win a championship at Florida. He will go on, I think, to be an OC somewhere successfully. I don't know if we see Dan Mullen as a head coach ever again. I don't know if we do. This may have said to him, I don't want to do that anymore. And you know what? There's nothing wrong with that. As we said, I think his ceiling is a championship-level OC on a championship-level coach's staff. Now, maybe he thinks I'll do it somewhere else. I don't know. I think it's possible Something else happens for him that is not that. But it is time for us to talk about some head coaching candidates. Even if Dan Mullen gets retained, we feel like this is the right time to discuss this. It's the right time to deep dive into the three-year test. But first, Alan, before we go into the three-year test, let's just start at the athletic director level. And that is what are we looking for in a football coach? And I'll give you my stuff, which is one, I want to see some evidence. I need evidence-based, real-world data points that indicate they can do the job at Florida. That's where the three-year test comes in. That's my test. If it's available, I have some data to indicate they're trending in the right direction. It does not mean that I know for sure they're going to succeed my program, but there's some evidence available. Secondarily, I have to have an extremely good reason to believe they can recruit at a top-five level at Florida. I have to because I can't win without it. I cannot win without it. I don't care if I think this coach is the greatest X's nose coach of all time. If I don't think there's a way for that coach and his staff to recruit at a top five level, it is a non-starter. Cannot be done, right? And thirdly, I need a coach who understands Florida football's culture. 
We've had issues with a lot of these coaches here recently on not understanding the culture of a Florida football fan. We're offensively minded. We want to win championships. We want authenticity, right? We're we're a generation of Steve Spurrier fans, so to speak. We want you to tell us the truth. Do not give us the bull. We do not respond to that. We're not going to blindly follow coach speak statements. But that's way further down the line than those first two, which is can they win at my program? And can they recruit at an extremely high level? Because if they can't, they're not going to win, right? So that you begin with that and then begins the difficulty of whittling it down. So the, I talked about this like three categories last week, and this has become clear for me. They need to be elite level in two of these three, and hopefully all three, although it's not necessarily a must, right? Like X's and O's coaching acumen, recruiting, and then like CEO, like management, right? This is a big machine you're operating. And so I think with each person that you're potentially hiring, one of those things is going to be an unknown for you when you move them up a level. Because rarely are you going to go and hire and like a guy at your level, right? That's why the Jimbo Fisher from FSU to A&M thing was such a big deal. Cause you don't transfer over like that very often, right? Just we're like, Florida's going to go hire Ohio state's coach or USC's coach if they're doing well. So you're projecting almost always they're moving up a little bit, either from like, you know, if you're hiring Mississippi state's coach, right? That's a projection. That's what we did. But we had some data that thought that that could work, right? If you're coming up somebody from the G5 level, they've maybe they've done it at that level, but they haven't done it at the big boy level. Or maybe you're hiring an assistant. So maybe he has a coaching acumen. Maybe he's known as a recruiter. Can he do the CEO management stuff? So there's always going to be projection. That's what you said. What does the data tell you? It's always going to be incomplete because you're never going to be able or very, very rarely going to be able to hire the guy who's already checked all the boxes. Almost never. Because you also don't know that, like you said, right? You know it about the guys who have proven it. You're not going to be able to hire them in most cases. So you look and you think, does this person have the material? So that's the stuff that Alan and I cannot evaluate because we're not interviewing them. But what we're saying is if I'm an AD or you're an AD, Alan, during the interview process, you better believe I'm trying to uncover that. What's your plan to become a top five recruiting school? What's your level of confidence for getting there? How much do you like recruiting? How important is to you? You know, and then you evaluate their plans. How are they going to get there? How do they view hiring their staff? What's their war plan for recruiting people in the state of Florida and elsewhere? And if you like that plan and you believe they have the charisma, et cetera, to do it, and there's some track record they've done it before, you have reason to believe they can handle that. And you give them a shot. But that has to be a, a significant part of the eval process. All right, let's let's go through. We're going to use the three-year test as sort of a funnel here, Alan, to evaluate some candidates that are existing right now. But before we do that, I want to give a little context on some historical candidates so we can kind of walk through the three-year test just briefly here to kind of give you an idea of how it works and what it looks like. And so we're going to, you know, discuss these kind of quickly. And we're going to start, of course, with with Mullen. And again, the three-year test, pretty simple. It works in two ways. The first way is there's a baseline test. If you're at a school that cannot theoretically win a national title with one coach away mentality, you know, Florida, Georgia, LSU, right? Texas, Alabama, USC, Ohio State, et cetera. If you're not at one of those schools, you're at Clemson when Dabo was there. You're at Michigan State right now with Mel Tucker. You're at a baseline school. And what that means is you need your baseline test to be above the historical average of that school and hopefully significantly above it, hopefully historically above it to indicate you're worthy of a jump to the big leagues. Let's start with Dan Mullen. Dan Mullen at Mississippi State. He did up the program's success, and he was better than the baseline. He was not 
tremendously better than the baseline. Well, close to that, though. But he was close, correct. He was close, and the reason he was close is he just lost way too many games against top teams. In fact, a lot has already circulated with what Mike Leach has done this year at Mississippi State, beating four AP top 25-ranked programs. Mullen, his last you know six, seven years, there was 2-12 and 12 versus those top 25 programs. We talked about that when he got hired. There was reason to believe he could not beat the elite teams. That was a problem, but he was above the baseline, therefore a reasonable hire at a school that's one coach away. And then at UF, as we've already chronicled, he failed his three-year test, which is you have to get your team essentially into the playoff within your first three years. And so, you know, had a really good year too. Obviously, year three was the year you thought going into with Kyle Trask. That could have been the year, probably should have been the year, but it wasn't. And oftentimes the three-year test, what people say, Alan, is, but this is going to be so close. There's going to be games you lose by a couple of points here and there. Yes, that's true. But the reality is the best coaches always seem to find a way to win enough of those games to reach that level. And the ones that don't always seem to find a way to just right. narrowly lose those games. So that's and kind I of think obscuring some of this data here, we'll have to acknowledge this COVID a little bit. It's that's kind of wonky, sure. especially some of the records, right? But the other category of Mullen was the recruiting. So... And that's, there you go. So yeah. the three-year test, one portion, right? Second part, recruiting. So you look and you say, okay, look, COVID's a 2020 year. What happens with that? And we'll talk about a candidate who actually slides right into that in a minute. But are they also recruiting at a top five level? No, they're not. Okay, so you fail the three-year test, which you could argue a couple of points here and there, and you're failing the recruiting test. That's what led me to my end of my year three to say, look, this just isn't good enough. We're out. But that's how the three-year test kind of helps you as an AD. All right, Nick Saban obvious Michigan State took over the program never had a 10 win season over the past decade rarely were good before that and all he did was finish ranked three times went absolutely nuts just took off like a rocket ship went to LSU right same thing with them one 10 season in their previous 10 one 10 win season in their previous 10 they'd finished ranked just three times took over and he's transformational for both of those programs exactly and launched them into the stratosphere won a national title Bama same thing they were only ranked three times in the previous 10 years. That was Bama, right? So what you're seeing is that all these schools, LSU, Bama, Florida, we think, oh, we've fallen on hard times. All of these schools are the same as Florida. You have to have the right head coach. He goes there. He wins a national title, uh, obviously, in year three going 14-0, right? So again, Nick Saban is the GOAT, but that's an example of him. Jimbo Fisher, you mentioned already, takes over for Bowden. They were finished ranked once in their previous four years. They were struggling on a downturn. Hadn't finished in the top 10 since the year 2000 when he took over. This is a while ago, right? He went 10 and 4, 9 and 4, 12 and 2, and then 14 and 0 in the national title, which is year three for him. That 10 and 4 year was sort of a transition year between him and Bowden. So, again, three years, national title, significant progress, passes the three year test. Chip Kelly, Oregon, passes the three year test. BCS title loss in year two, has not won a title, right? But passes that test. Dabo Sweeney, Clemson, not at a school where you were going to win right away. So he first passed the baseline test at Clemson. He took them way higher than they'd been before. He also was recruiting way above what they had recruited at before. And then essentially he also wins a national title, which makes sense for Clemson, of course, to hang on to him because he was exceeding all expectations. He did not leave Clemson. Hits big, right? Lincoln Riley, Oklahoma, goes to the playoffs in year one, two, and three. Of course, tough loss this past weekend, but again, Passed the test, has not won a title yet. Certainly a guy you keep. Brian Kelly, Cincinnati, took them to all-time levels, averaging 11 wins there. Notre Dame, passed the three-year test there, getting them into the national championship game in his third year. Had some tough years, which you mentioned after that, right? Tough years that kind of refigure things, fire your staff, 
Obviously, he's been very, very successful at Notre Dame and is a guy who's passed the test, meaning in theory he could win a national title. He may never win one, but he could. And now Allen. And Notre Dame is probably not in that category of like. They're not. I agree. And that's why I think if I'm Notre Dame, I'm holding on to him forever. And an example that we know well, Urban Meyer. Correct. Who is a rocket ship everywhere he's been. Bowling Green, historic success. Utah, historic success. Florida wins a championship in his second year. And then again, obviously in his fourth year and then goes to Ohio state and immediately turns him into a juggernaut. Correct. Anybody else you want to mention? Yeah. Well, Bob Stoops, same thing. Bobby Stoops. And then Pete Carroll, same thing. Pete Carroll comes kind of outside the box hire, goes to USC. Again, they were not ranked USC. You think they were not ranked in the previous six seasons that he was there at the time. Eight wins was the most they had had. So these, all these programs we think of as juggernauts are only juggernauts when the right coach is there. He then promptly goes six and six, eleven and two, and then twelve and one and wins a national title, and then cheats and does other stuff, right? But he was great. So then you have some guys. Here's the guys that are going to pass the three year test, but are not those guys we just mentioned. We'll start with Gene Chizik. Takes over for Tuberville, who had a lot of success, had won a national title, and then Gene Chizik wins the Cam Newton lottery, picks him up on his team, wins it, meaning he probably paid him and did some other stuff, right? Who knows. Either way, he then just trends way down off a cliff after that, and he's gone by the end of year four. He technically passes his three-year test, but he trends down. Passing your three-year test, by the way, does not mean that you hold on to the coach forever. That's a really important thing. It just means, hey, they're capable of winning a national title, which he actually won one. Gus Malzahn, BCS title game loss in year one. Okay, pass your three-year test. Give him some leash, which Auburn did. Eventually, of course, gets fired in 2020 as he was trending down. They held on to him probably two years too long. Larry Coker, maybe the best of all, right? Wins a national title in year one, loses a title in year two, trends down for a while, gone after year six, held him way too long. He was the greatest caretaker, perhaps of all, of a team he didn't build. Les Miles at LSU, right? Wins a national title in year three, taking over for Saban, which is a well-stocked roster, Les Miles obviously trended down after that, had some high moments, et cetera. And then at Orgeron, same thing, won the national title in year three at LSU. So you can add Mark Helfrich to this list as well. I oh, think, yeah, nice name there. Um, mm-hmm. At Oregon. Yeah. So I think you can see where is the person taking over the program at and Correct. versus where. So if you're Larry Coker, you're taking over an all time program. All time. All time. And yeah, you can keep it together, maintain some of the momentum, but the wheels are going to start to come off. Correct. And I think LSU wisely saw this with Coach O. It's like, this is not, this is going down, not up. And that's the key. That's not to take away from Larry Coker. He still had to like maintain that all-time level of talent. And and even when you watch a special and he basically says he did nothing, doesn't matter. He still did did nothing was the right thing. Whatever. He won the national titles. You're not going to take it away from him. But you weren't going to keep him for 30 years like you wouldn't. Well, it's if you have that team, it's probably better to hire Larry Coker than a guy who's going to come and be like, yeah, there hey, you I go. know the plan. Exactly I right. I'm going to do better than the other guy. Yeah, there's some wisdom there. Let the players play. Right now we get to the ones that were interesting. A guy I loved. I loved who had passed his baseline test with flying colors was none other than Jim Harbaugh at Stanford, right? Crushing it. Absolutely doing great work there. Goes to Michigan, did not pass his three-year test to which I said, it pains me to say this for a guy who doesn't pass his three-year test that I thought was going to be great. You should get rid of him. Well, we're now, you know, in year seven for Michigan. They're having a nice season. No playoff on the horizon. Well, it could be. Well, maybe I guess, but it doesn't seem like it. doesn't seem like it. But either way, you know, Failure of the three-year test. Then Mac, of course, at Florida, failed his three-year test, and he got fired despite going to two sort of fraudulent SEC East championships. Must champ. No baseline test. Now, a lot of coaches have done great with no baseline. There was no baseline test for Kirby. Kirby was an assistant. No test. You don't know. We're going to talk about that in a minute. 
Muschamp, same thing, was the guy everybody wanted to hire, did not pass his three-year test, eventually goes away in year four, which is good on Florida. Again, I think the closer you can fire a guy to year three, the better it is because the data's here. Scott Frost passed the baseline test with wild, wild color juice. I mean, absolutely killing it. And then failed the baseline test at Nebraska. I don't think anybody would suggest Nebraska is a school that's one coach away anymore. But he is underperforming all of the recent Nebraska coaches, which is why you and I really like, I think, what Nebraska did. is hey, this guy was amazing at UCF. Perhaps we give him another year. Let's see. Because well, it is hard for us to Harbaugh win. Frost buyout plan here. I want to go Correct. That and that's exciting. But I, I like it. I think it's a recognition that if you're Nebraska, you are not Florida or LSU. And perhaps the guy who was so strong on his previous baseline test deserves a little more leash. Well, also that $20 million buyout maybe gets Which him a little more Which does it too, and we'll talk about buyouts. But either way, point being, failed the three-year test. So now we finally, with all that in the rear view, Alan, we get to our current candidates people are looking at hiring. So and these we'll, are all the hot candidates. Hot names, there's more, right? But we're going to go through the ones we can apply the test to. So first things first, we'll look at James Franklin. A guy that USC is rumored to hire, a guy you and I have talked about at Vandy, aced the baseline test, the best coach in their history. Goes to Penn State. Yeah, Penn so State. not just Vandy. So let's contextualize this a little yeah. bit, right? Because there's different skill sets of different programs, Correct. right? Correct. I mean, not just because that almost, you said aced, and that's probably the right word, but so historically good for Vanderbilt yes. that it's almost, you can't even see it. It's on, not even on the graph. Yeah, it's that's what I mean. It's unreal. Unreal, which is good. That means you get a chance at a real school. It does not mean, by the way, the more you ace your baseline test does not mean that you're going to win a national title at a big school. Because I think building something, we're going to get to some of these guys, building something at a small school is a different skill set than winning at an elite level. That is exactly right. You can't necessarily, unless you're an all-time GOAT like Urban Meyer or Nick Saban, doesn't mean you can do both. Correct. Great point. And that's what's really important. We're diving deep into this stuff. There are different skill sets for these different levels. It takes different stuff. He goes to Penn State. He's been nice at Penn State. He just barely did not pass his three-year test, going eleven and three in his third year. 2017, 11 and two, then nine and four, eleven and two, four and five last year, and then this year trending down. Trending right. So down. I think weirdly, he could do better in a different place. Right. I think actually if I'm USC, I still might hire him. If I'm Florida, unless like 15 people tell me no. I probably don't hire him. Yeah, I'm already... Well, if it's me, for sure, we know it's a no because he failed the he failed the three-year test. So I, sure. I can't do it. I do think I do think that Penn State is a is a one coach away from winning a national title still. It's harder. Right. It's harder. But I still think they are there. Yeah, I wouldn't hire him, but I don't think it's a crazy, crazy hire. It's a... Right. I think still it's a non-championship-oriented hire. But it is that my program will be consistent. I'll win games. But if I'm a USC fan and I like the three-year test, I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't right? be excited, but I guess there's this weird little narrative that maybe he could do better at USC than he could do at Penn State. Maybe. I don't like it, though, because I think those are I don't like same. it either. I wouldn't do it. Yeah. I don't like it, though, because the data says, mm, maybe not. All right. Now let's look at, now we get to the good stuff. Okay. Let's look at the candidates that are realistic. We're not going to include Jimbo Fisher and Nick Saban and stealing people like that, because that I don't think is frankly going to happen. But here are some coaches that could happen. Some sitting... Head Sitting head coaches, because this is these are the ones we can evaluate the data on. And there's not that, to be fair, Alan, this year, there are not very many that you can apply the baseline test even to. This is not a year where you have 10 guys with good baseline tests that make sense, but here are the ones that do. First, we'll start with the most obvious of all of these, Luke Fickle. He's at Cincinnati. They were averaging, he's averaging nine wins. Um, before him, the average win weight was seven wins. He has been now, as of this year, just better than Brian Kelly. 
And we said that Brian Kelly was ludicrously good, which tells you something about Luke Fickle. Look how good Brian Kelly has been at Notre Dame, a tough place to win. So Fickle's matching Brian Kelly. He's potentially going to get his team into a playoff. Acing his baseline test, absolutely, without reservation, I would give him a chance at a tier one, as we're going to call it, school. Will he fit Florida? We'll wait for that. But just for now, no. Golden pass of the baseline test. He deserves a shot. I have no reservations about that. And then I would ask him all the recruiting questions. You know, of course, he's been a good recruiter, but where are you? How does it work? What's your plan for Florida? Next up on the list is Billy Napier. So some of you may be familiar with him. His name is taken off, I think, this week for Florida. It's a name we've talked about before. A guy who has an unbelievable coaching tree exposure to pretty much everyone. Dabo Sweeney, Nick Saban, right? Been on a lot of staff. He's the coach at Louisiana. Currently the coach at Louisiana. Mm -hmm. Exactly. What's Louisiana? A program that averaged four wins over the past 30 years. Four wins per season. He's averaging nine plus wins per year, which is pretty crazy. They had only won seven games once in the modern history of their program, all he's done is go in year one, seven and seven, 11 and three, 10 and one, and this year, nine and one. Pretty incredible stuff. Crushing that baseline test. On top of that, he's the best recruiter in the history of Louisiana. He's number one in their conference at recruiting, a school that never achieved that, and a school with ties to the South and all of the elite coaches. So clearly a guy who's nailing it at an underrated school, who also, by the way, Alan beat the next guy on our list the coach of the clones in a game at Iowa state last season, right? So Matt Campbell, Matt Campbell's been a candidate who has obviously passed the baseline test at Iowa state. Iowa state was averaging 4.4 wins in the modern era. They're averaging seven plus wins with him per season, which is pretty incredible. And Campbell's already won nine games one time, despite the fact that their entire modern history, they won nine games one time currently though, in the midst of a quite disappointing season, either way passed his baseline test. Those are the three coaches that have three years of experience, which is required for the baseline test, to say, okay, these three guys I think are merited for a step up to a program where you could win a national title. And then from there comes all the stuff we've talked about. Now, on this list, who is your favorite on this list for Florida and why? Of those guys. Of these three. We're going to go further, but just of these three, these are the baseline test guys. Of these three, who is your favorite and why? So Campbell... Fickle. Napier. Napier. We're going to get to your real favorite at the end, but for now, out of these. My real favorite? Well, you might have you might have a coach you're thinking, hey, I want this okay. guy. We're going to get that. Okay. Um, so there's question marks about all three of these guys, right? Um, again, I think what our hope is in this conversation is to, to fill you in on what the process might look like Correct. and what we should go through and who we're looking at, right? Correct. Not that anybody, this is the slam duck, this guy sucks. No, no, like definitely that. not. We're, now we're spitballing because, again, Alan and I cannot sit down with these guys. Mm-hmm. If we could, we'd give you a better report. But just, you know, based upon feel maybe or profile. So Fickle, again, the question would be, could he recruit at this level? I think he could. Now, he's been in Ohio his entire time. So if you're Ohio State and you're hiring, you probably feel better about than if you're like Florida and you're hiring him. Not to say he couldn't do it. Sure, like Urban, Urban Meyer, Meyer, Meyer did not seem it, right? to have a problem. But that would be like a that would be something you wanted to explore. And then to, he's a defensive guy, right? And I think Florida culturally, we would preference an offensive guy. Now, if the best candidate by far is a defensive guy, I think you look the other way on that, right? But that's not a check mark in his favor necessarily. Sure, but again, the best coaches in the game right now, sure, 
are often defensive. Nick Saban being one. Kirby Smart right now this season doing for sure. Well. It, I would do it, but that's something. If sure. I had a competing, if I had the exact same guy and he was offensive, I would take that. I agree. Guy. That's exactly. I think that's exactly right. Two equally profiled guys at Florida lean offensively. Agreed. Matt Campbell. I love Matt Campbell. We know that he's your guy. Um, I I have a lot of question marks about what he could do at an elite program. I agree. Now certain schools, I would. If I could get him to come, I would say absolutely. Also agree. He'd be a major step up for almost like 95% of the programs. Yes. Agreed. A lot of question marks same thing about recruiting, winning at this level. All those still apply. And then Napier is really interesting, right? He checks like every box, even his coaching degree and pedigree, which I think is often overrated because you're like, let's hire a Saban assistant. That doesn't work. Well, that, yeah, clearly that has not been wise. He does have Saban on his resume, right? Um He's had some ups and downs. I think those have been probably good for him overall. He's maybe the most interesting candidate for me. But again, he's coaching at Louisiana. He's not at a Power 5 school. A lot of question marks, but I'm extremely interested in him. And I, again, there's all these things too, like what does he sound like? I there, We've not gone very far because two weeks ago, the prospect of Dan Mullen getting fired was like zero, Right. There might have been you would have liked to fire him, but <laughs> right, there was, was nobody. There. there was no actual chance he was sure, going to get fired. That's now, true. He still might not. This right. is a little bit preemptive, but yes. as we're going through this cycle, here's what we're thinking about. That's what about correct. you? Yeah, Napier. Exactly. Exactly. He's my number one in this baseline test for all the reasons you mentioned. He actually passes every test, and he's been in the South, and he's been under all the coaching right. trees who are best in the South, and he's crushing it in recruiting, and he's an offensive guy. I mean, he checks every box. So I think for the baseline guys, for Florida, the fit that you have, that's the guy that you would take if you were just going to use the baseline testing data. And yeah, and you could it. talk to him and be like, man, this guy's super shady and I'm not going to hire him, right? Sure. So there's all those kinds of things that we yeah, don't know. Seems unlikely given what other coaches have said, but that's why you interview and you ask the other questions because I think on paper, his baseline test is incredible, right? All right, now let's go to what I'm going to call the wild cards. This does not mean that they're actually like, wild cards per se in the term of two to risk or the first guy is uh, but that we don't have we don't have a test on them that's complete or it's inconclusive and we'll start with the truest of true wild cards i mean the wild card of all wild cards of all time maybe in any coaching sport ever and that is lane kiffin who it's impossible for me to think four years ago if you would have told me i would include lane kiffin on a coaching search for florida i'd have been like you have lost your mind Four years ago, if we had hired him, I've been like, I don't know if I can be a Florida fan anymore. Correct. And that's what's so incredible is I'm going to list him here as a wild card. And of course, almost all of you know his story, uh, right? He's, he failed at the Raiders. Famously, Al Davis gets up there with an overhead projector and basically accuses him of lying about everything and being like the worst person ever. He then goes to Tennessee. He's there for a year. The program is on fire with excitement. Recruiting is through the roof. He goes to USC. He gets fired from USC. He's left on the tarmac. They can't even, they don't even fly him back home. They're so frustrated with him. He then goes to the Alabama Rehab Project, where Nick Saban then fires him before the national title. Nick Saban, a guy who clearly has a commitment to winning championships above all, couldn't take him any longer. And I think it cost him a national title by firing him. He then goes to FAU, where he seemingly has rebuilt, I don't know how it's amazing, I'm going to give him all the credit, his entire image. He seems humble. He's likable. He's friendly. He's relevant. He knows how to handle social media. He's kind to other teams. He's effusive in praise for other coaches. It's wild. He's also by far, I think, Alan, the most productive offensive mind in all of college football. Alabama's offense is unbelievable under him. 
FAU's offense is incredibly great. And now Ole Miss in the midst of this run. So you have a guy who's inconclusive with his test. Tennessee, inconclusive. USC failed the three-year test, right? So he's only in year two at Ole Miss, right? FAU crushed the baseline test. Ole Miss, year two, right now, trending to crush the baseline test. Probably going to crush the baseline test if he stays for three years. But it's inconclusive. He's a mixed bag of stuff, but... And Ole Miss is not a one coach and you win a national title. No, it is not. So they're a baseline test. But they are, interestingly... So, I mean, they did have a very high level of success with Hugh Freeze. So they did. He's not doing something that's unprecedented Lots of there. cheating, though, with Hugh. Let's not forget that. Sure. Sure. <laughs> but you can do somewhat similar to what he's done this year at you Ole can. Miss. It's not, it's, it's not like outside historical. But the way he's doing it feels a little different. And that's the doing. key. The style, how it looks, what's happening. Now, he he did walk into Matt Corral, right, which is helpful. But mm-hmm. Lane Kiffin on the positive sides. Nobody would say he's not one of the best offensive minds and not just a mind, but productive offensive minds in the game. He also has proven to be an excellent, excellent recruiter everywhere he's been. He's very solid at recruiting, but, but Alan, but, but, but unfortunately he just has, it's tough to know what he's going to do. He's, he's not been at a place long enough to know at a big school what's going to happen anymore, but there's reason to believe that if he can maintain this current character act he has going on, he could be a coaching candidate. You look back on and think, why did I not pull the trigger on Lincoln? Or what the hell were we thinking? He just led our program. On and track. I think that's the only two eventualities for him. I, I, that's what's crazy about Lane Kiffin. Is there's not like a middle ground, I feel like, where he's at your program for 10 years and everything's great and you're successful. Maybe you don't win a title, but it's fun. It's either going to be like he takes you to the moon or you are like a ball of fire. So there's risk is what we're saying with him. There's real risk, but there's a lot to like. And I think a good way to test like how much you think a candidate could be good is think like snap reaction, Lane Kiffin at LSU. Thoughts about LSU's future direction. I'm scared. Exactly. And that's, I think as an AD, it's a good way to measure how you might view a candidate. And you're like, okay, Lane Kiffin versus Billy Napier at LSU. Who scares you more? Lane. Lane does. But not by a lot. Not by a lot, but probably Lane. And that that tells you a lot, right? So interesting. So I think that's Lane Kiffin, the wild card of all wild cards. Now here comes some some ones you've heard. Mel Tucker, right? He's currently Michigan State's coach. He was at Colorado for a year, went five and seven. People loved what he was doing there. Snapped him up, went to Michigan State, two and five in a COVID year, nine and one this year. Really quick turnaround. But testing wise, obviously inconclusive. Right. And He's a guy who does have roots in the South. He's worked a lot of places with a lot of people. Uh, I don't know that he's known as like, this guy's the best recruiter, but I think he does have a reputation as a plus recruiter. Yes, known as I'd a good recruiter. I'd want to drill down that a little further. And again, he's remade Michigan State through the transfer portal, which is a healthy skill. But you know, just a lot of question marks around him because he's so early. So early. Yeah. There's more risk. As we're going on the risk level now, there's more risk for me for Mel Tucker than there is for Elaine Kiffin or Napier hire. Because although Napier has been at smaller schools, he does have a conclusive test. Tucker has questions. But it looks like right now LSU, from all the inside reports, is really zeroing in on him. Defensive-minded coach. So we'll see how that goes there. All right. Then Dave Aranda, who right now, sensational stuff at Baylor sensational stuff at Baylor he goes two and seven in year one and a quick eight and two in year two now look people have won at Baylor 
So the baseline test inconclusive. Art Briles, Matt Rule, both. A lot of people successful. have won. Matt Rule, a widely respected, tremendous coach of the Panthers right now. So that's a tough baseline test to pass. But clearly a guy who was, in, as we mentioned, an all-time great DC at LSU is doing phenomenal things with Baylor's right. defense he has right the coaching, now. He has the coaching acumen, and he seems like he can put together a program. The recruiting, I guess, remains to be seen. But he's a really intriguing guy, and he is a defensive guy. So, you know, again, your mileage may vary on that. Correct. So interesting guy, but inconclusive, right? Another wild card is Mario Cristobal. And the reason he's a wild card is he coached. He did coach technically long enough. He coached at FIU, which had no program up until the very, very and modern they crazily era. crazily fired him. And they were had won no games. He comes in, and all he does is do some crazy stuff, going to bowl games, winning bowl games, and they fired him. I mean, it was like an all-time head scratcher. Which is really insane. They fired him. And he now is the baseline at FAU. That his, he's the baseline. So if you look at that, clearly he did well. Butch Jones comes in as two really good years, trends down, and now is going to step away, reports this week, from FIU because they are, quote, sabotaging the program, which does, in fact, seem to be true. They've cut funding. They really didn't let them recruit very often. They're doing all sorts of zany stuff at FIU. And uh, Butch, who obviously was, you know... Um, Coach of Miami, coach really, of the uh, Browns, coach yeah, of the really, obviously a Broncos. highly right. I mean, just a highly acclaimed guy assembled the greatest talent ever in the history of college football with the Miami Hurricanes is walking away saying that's no good. So, Cristobal, interesting, inconclusive test. Then Oregon, obviously, just missed the playoff in year two, going twelve and two there. And here's the COVID rule for Cristobal: they struggled mightily in the COVID year last year, underperformed expectations going four and three. So if you want to say something we said last year, which I think is valid, if you want to give coaches a pass for COVID based upon what went down at your school, you could do that and give them an extra year, in which case Oregon now is nine and one and in position to be a playoff team and a playoff pick you have, which we would say we'll give them a COVID three-year test pass if that happens. So he's obviously trending up, but also in recruiting, they're crushing at recruiting. Correct. Correct. Crushing it in recruiting. Top five in recruiting in Oregon. Guy with ties, obviously, to the South, Miami, et cetera. So interesting candidate there. All right. Then we have what we're going to call sort of the not ready yet. There's more of these guys than just this one. I'm going to give you the captain of this ship, which is Jamie Chadwell at Coastal Carolina. Uh, you know, historic stuff going on there at a school like that. Really remarkably unbelievable stuff there. But as you mentioned, a very different skill set to build a program from nothing and put them on the map and do what they did than to go elsewhere. But he clearly has earned his level up, and it probably needs to be to a mid-tier school, not a Florida. If you know, I think the one that everyone's kind of pointing out, if they do fire Justin Fuente, Virginia Tech, like a school like that where you can win big, like in terms of, you know, win your conference potentially, you know, have a lot of success there. There's a recruiting area. That, that kind of level I think would be perfect for him. It would be, yes. And sorry, I, the reason I froze on Butch Jones to go back for a second is it's not Butch Jones. It's like, why am I mentioning Tennessee's coach? It's Butch Davis. Yes, I held up for a second there when I said Butch Jones. I just heard Butch. False. I didn't even hear the last Yeah, part. sorry, I did. Always, We always want to correct our mistakes here. Butch Davis. Butch Jones never assembled prolific talent at Miami <laughs> or anywhere else. But Butch Davis quitting FIU. So, yeah, Jamie Chadwell passing the baseline test with flying colors deserves to level up. If you are a football program in the mid-tier level, absolutely, like you just mentioned, Valtech definitely take a guy like that makes a lot of sense he's also been recruiting that area all right now we could move into and we're not going to spend a lot of time here any wild card name you want coordinators 
former head coaches like Dan Quinn, not at the college level, at the NFL level, right? Dream up a guy you can be there. But basically, these are the guys that you do not have any testing available on. Bill O'Brien, no testing at the college level, NFL level, yes. Penn State, he was there. He did phenomenally well, but not there long enough to know what happened. It was sanction-based years. So what happened? There's a couple of guys, Alan, you have on your list here that we are going to talk about. But there's not a lot that Alan and I can say about these guys because you just don't know. It doesn't mean you don't hire them. Some of these guys have been amazing, but I think they have to be really good fits. And there has to be a really good reason why you think they're better than the guys that pass the baseline test. And that's the rubric I think I would look at is, is this guy better than Elaine Kiffin or Billy Napier for my school? And what's the reason that I think it's worth the extra risk of having an unproven guy at the college level? So there's a couple guys, Jeff Hathley at BC, former Ohio State DC Who's right at the baseline level right now at BC. So it's year two for him. He's like baseline trending. You know, you have to have all three years. That's why you need three years because year three could be a massive level up. And that's why you don't want to jump it too early. And then Jeff Levy, who's the Ole Miss offensive coordinator, comes from that, you know, Art Bryles, Baylor tree. He's an interesting guy just because of how good they've been on offense and what his pedigree is. I mean, you have almost no information about him. These aren't typically guys Florida would hire. Definitely, yeah. The problem for Florida. The problem is if you have a, like a low like candidate cycle and you have other interesting jobs open up. Now Florida should never probably consider like who else's job is opening cuz you can't always predict that. But every guy that we've listed could say no for some reason or the other. Sure. Oh, yeah. You never know why or what they're looking so for. So if you pull the trigger on a guy like Dan Mullen, yep. you might be hiring a Jeff Halfley or a Jeff Levy. Cool. Hard to imagine that's what would happen. But I mean, sure, look at this. I sure. mean, is Matt Campbell ever going to leave Iowa State? Lane Kiffin get hired by um, LSU. You got to. Th- Luke okay. Fickle could say Fine. no. Billy sure. Napier could get hired by LSU. Maybe Lane Kiffin doesn't want to leave Ole Miss. But they both can't. Yeah, there, I was going to say, right? you have to insert a narrative where Lane so, Kiffin doesn't want to leave Ole Miss. There's other... There's other things, right? Or maybe you look into Lane Kiffin's past and say he's just not available for us to hire. Sure. Right? Fine. So there, there, anytime you fire a coach, unless you have like your hand put guy ready, there's always going to be risk. And so there's a there's a whole lot more people in that. Jeff Halfley, Jeff Lebby. Oh, there's so many. There's so many. Yeah. yeah. So just to illustrate, there's a lot of guys who are like coordinators or... Brent Venables. Yeah, like Eklo. Right. You can go on and on. Yeah. Marcus Freeman, our number one pick for D.C., who's right. tearing it up at Notre Dame. That defense yeah. is better and better each week. Sure. Sure. Mike Elko, the defensive coordinator, right? So there's a and, lot of these yep. guys mm-hmm. out there that if it gets to that, you could start really... You go a couple of weeks into that coaching cycle, maybe you're... And that's what would happen is you go right. down cycle. But I think as an AD, this is what we're giving you. I think you start with your rubric. Here's where I have data and evidence. I'm going to start with these guys. And then I'm going to, if I can't get them, I have to work down. And then you get into the, you get into the unknown territory, which is harder. It's harder. You, I'm never going to fault an AD for following a process. I'm, I'm a fan. And we'll talk about kind of what we would do as ADs here in a second with actually managing the process of the coaching carousel. But hopefully that's a good insight into kind of what it may look like based upon you know, our own creation of the three-year test here. You can look at the history up for yourself. We had a, a guy on Twitter kind of right through and give me stats on the success of it and what's happened and not happened. But the real key is, again, so far, no one who's failed the three-year test has won a national title in the modern era. And that's why it's interesting to look at. I think then, Alan, let's steer the discussion towards this. So I am I am a big fan of riding the coaching carousel, which we talked about last time, because I view it like this. 
if I know three years of data is enough time to evaluate at a program like Florida, my coach's future, I want to have as many shots at getting an elite coach as I can, knowing that the odds are against me to find an elite coach, right? I'm not, I'm going to be wrong more often than I'm right. I don't know that Billy Napier can win at Florida, but he's trending in that direction. I don't know that Lane Kiffin can win at Florida, but he's trending obviously in that direction, et cetera, et cetera, Luke Fickle, whatever. But if I give myself more rides on the carousel, I'm, I have a better chance of hitting one. So what is the problem with this? Well, there's a cost to doing so. And the major cost is actually financial because of these buyouts that you have, not only for the head coach, but also for the assistant coaches. Now, I think I could address this as an AD by beginning to put market pressure on my coaches saying, look, I'm happy with either you, Lane Kiffin, or Billy Napier. And here's the deal. You get three years, all of your assistants get three years. And if you don't pass these tests after three years, then you're out. And if you don't like that, it's not the right school for you because we're trying to win a title and three years is plenty of time as evidenced by all of this stuff for you to fit into this rubric. Now, again, that would be rather revolutionary for an AD to do something like that, but I think it's already happening, Alan. I think the velocity of teams firing coaches is already happening and I think ADs are finally waking up to the madness that is giving these coaches these huge buyouts because guess what? Nobody wants your coach. Does anybody want to steal Dan Mullen? No, they don't. But yet the next Dan Mullen gets hired and gets a massive buyout. For what reason? The odds are they fail out of that top school, not succeed. And also if you're Florida and you're winning a championship, like who who's actually stealing your coach? Exactly. Unless it's like their alma mater who's an equally, if Dan Mullen went to USC and you just go, I, I got to, I got to go home, right? But the odds of that happening are so infinitesimal, so small. small, almost unprecedented. So you're right. guarding against a historically extremely unlikely scenario. And the most likely scenario, you're putting yourself in a bad spot. It's foolish. It's, it's silly. Crazy. It doesn't make any sense. And it's time for ADs to become more like real CEOs in the for-profit world and recognize that you need to manage your organization to the probability of success and failure not fear, not fear. Use the numbers. So for me, I'm well, riding the carousel. Here's the other problem with this scenario is too, is as an AD, you only get so many shots at this unless you just have institutional power. If you fire two football coaches, you're most likely done or you maybe, I guess, at, at best get one more hire. Now, maybe that's not the right way to operate in the real world. Maybe your your plan is the best one, but this is like an NBA GM, right? What are they incentivized to do is to keep their job, right? So some of the incentives work the other way for a for an AD, right? The more times you fire a guy, the more times you're admitting failure. Sure, but I think that's the key is I think you have to, my job as an AD would be to under, to make my fans, my board, my university understand that here is the probability of success. The goal is to reach long-term success Failure to any entrepreneur is not getting it wrong. It's following the wrong process. I agree with you. And I, you're right. The, I think there has to be a, that's the key. There has to be a culture build amongst your own university for them to understand. Let's define failure. Look, Florida's a great school to do this at, Alan, because you know what Florida's obsessed with? Innovation. Florida wants to become the most innovative school, not only in America, but in the world. They're extremely leaning into entrepreneurship, innovation, failure is not failure. It's process. So it's a great school for someone to say, this is process. These are the odds, and this is why we do it. But you're totally right, Alan. 
there'd be a lot of people that would follow that. And maybe you lose your own job trying to follow the process. But if it's me, I'm happily going to ride out to the sunset saying, hey, look, I did what I thought had the highest expected value. And, and if I couldn't get university. other people to see it, that's my fault for communicating that way. But I have to do what I thought was best. And it just is not best to give huge buyouts to coaches that are most likely going to get fired. Well, the buyout thing them is for, crazy. Keep them for too long and cost yourself money and put handcuffs behind your own back. It doesn't make sense. But I do think we're starting to see the winds of change with how college football programs are handling the buyouts and how quickly they're firing their coaches. They seem to be waking up to the fact that having the right coach is way more important than whatever damage you think you do by firing somebody. Right. So this is what's crazy is the, the it's not balanced out yet. The Washington just fired Jimmy Lake. Year two. Yeah. Way underperforming. And does was a guy other, they loved and thought was right. going to be a great hire. Not right. a bad hire. Fine. No. Reasonable to hire the guy. Just yes. isn't getting it done. So, but the problem is buyout still somewhat substantial, right? Yes. Which so I love what the eighties at Michigan and, and um, Nebraska have done. Now these are guys who have come in. I know the AD at Nebraska did not hire Scott Frost. I couldn't confidently say the AD at Michigan did not hire Jim Harbaugh, but I don't think he did, but I could be wrong about that. Regardless, he's made the choice. Harbaugh went first year. Basically traded buyout money for more time. And so did Scott Frost, right? We're, we're decreasing your buyout. We have another year. Now, on one hand, you might, are you crazy? You're turning down all this buyout money. But I love... The incentives aligning here. These coaches don't want to admit failure. They want more time. Not one of these guys doesn't think they can get it done at this level. And so this is smart. This is mitigating past mistakes, right? And I, I love this. Like you want another year, we're gonna fire you. You get a lot of money, but hey, guess what? We'll keep you if you take this. Right. And if you have the money to pay the buyout, you do it. And if they say no, right? But I think this is really wise and hopefully this is going to, this will show more of ADs like you should not be giving these kind of buyouts to anybody. I love what you said. It's exactly right. Like you, no one needs a buyout. Well said that that's well said. And I think that's, we're seeing it finally happen in the real world. And I, and I think what you said is key. We talked about it last week. It's so wise for your program, for your fans, for your coach to prove, Hey, I believe in the long-term direction of this program. I'm not a mercenary, and I will show you that by putting my own money in the pot. And that is not taking guaranteed money. That's a good faith move by the coach. Because look, one of the nastiest things about firing a coach is when you fire a coach and you pay him a ton of extra money, nobody likes that. right? Your coach feels like a mercenary. It almost feels wrong. It is a contract. But in this case, you're like, hey, you know what? If Scott Frost fails next year, there's a level of goodwill that I as a fan would have. Like, hey, you know what? This dude bet on himself. He put his own money in the pot. He wants this to work. There's something comforting about that. It's wise on both sides. All right, now it is time to end this AD corner with the all-important question, Alan. Who is your number one and number two candidate right now for the Florida Gators should there be an opening? This is hard. I I will say I don't like any of them all that much. So there's not one you love. No, there's ones that I like. There's, this is not a cycle with urban Meyer. This is not like, even again, these don't always work out like a Tom Herman where you're like, this feels just like plug and play. And it so was, obvious. yeah, it didn't work. Mm -hmm. So, or a Scott Frost in Nebraska, right? This is funny how this doesn't work, right? That was the home run of all home run hires, Michigan with Harbaugh, 
alumni, this feels like, man, you were just crushing it right now. Weirdly, I think Napier is my number one hire. And that, and I don't know everything about him. He, I obviously know more about Lane Kiffin and even some of these other guys like, you know, Luke Fickle and stuff like that. Um, but he's an, he has an interesting trajectory. I'm looking at his ceiling as a coach and it's there. There's a, there's tons of upside and we don't know much of the downside right now. So that's really, really intriguing. Also knowing that it could flame out. I'm not saying he's going to be the slam dunk guy, right? Um, man, I don't even know that I have a guy that I like. I mean, Luke Fickle, I doesn't even feel like he's a real candidate. So that's, that's maybe, maybe he is. But it feels like he's waiting for one of those Big Ten jobs to open up. I don't know. Maybe he's if if I think the best job for him is if uh, Franklin goes to USC that he takes that Penn State job. That feels like ideal for him. It does feel right. But then again, if Urban Meyer is one of his guys, you know how Urban feels about Florida. It feels like the conversation would be he'd be crazy not to take that job. So if Fickle is in actually in the mix, I think he'd be number, my number one hire. Okay. That's, that's what we're looking for. We're, we're imagining sure. that you just get to pick from this list who you're who you're one. So one is fickle for you. Yeah, and, and I'd say two Napier, two Napier. Yeah, and that, given the respective schools they're at and where they're at, what's happening. All right, so I'm gonna go, and I can't believe I'm gonna say this, but I'm gonna say it. I'm gonna go number one for me would be Lane Kiffin. I can't believe it, but it's true. I've said it, my love for him has grown. I hated him, and now it's like kind of love the guy. Talk about it each week. He's charismatic. He's entertaining. And I think nice. he'd be number three for me. Yeah, he's 46, so he fits my younger college coaching rubric. We've heard my bias towards generally younger-minded coaches. He fits the modern game. He understands it. Number two for me right now is, is Billy Napier, and that's because, same thing, he's 41. He's offensive, great coaching tree. Uh, I like him a lot. And number three for me would be Luke Fickle, and the only reason Fickle's number three is he is such a defensive mind. And look, I think defense wins championships. I totally think that, but I also think – Florida is best suited with an offensive-minded coach. It fits the culture. It fits the state with an excellent defensive coordinator who a wise coach should always be able to employ. You should always be able to find a smart-thinking coach as long as you get talent in there. And that's why if you're a good recruiter, you will have the talent. People want to play for you. Right. Well, you said if you recruit at a high level, Dave Aranda, I mean, he's hired yes. a really nice OC this year. Correct. There you go. I mean, you can certainly do it. So I think I actually think diving into the test, the baseline test, and et cetera, this is a this is a fine year to hire a coach. Uh, I think if you're worried about USC, LSU, and Florida having openings at the same time, you shouldn't be. USC and Florida are not going to compete for the same coach, almost certainly, just the way that it's going, Alan. LSU and Florida would compete for the same coach, I think for sure. Almost every candidate would probably be doubling on both yes so, so those two are correct identical it seems like if the reports are true that mel tucker is really like that might be the place for him it's too early these things change every day who knows but regardless the final note on this and you said it again there alan these lists do not mean that i or alan think that either one of these or any one of these candidates has a better chance of success i think definitionally i don't know if luke fickle billy napier or the wild card of all wild cards lane kiffin has a better chance of success. You really can't know that. I know that Luke Fickle and Billy Napier deserve that chance, hands down for sure. And then you see what the results are because you can't know. And I would never hold an AD responsible for making that kind of hire. When you hold an AD responsible is when you do what Jeremy Foley did by going off the absolute reservation 
and hiring Ron Zook. That is when you hold your AD responsible and you say, look, that is an untenable, absolutely impossibly to logically defend action. Cannot be done, period. So as long as your AD is hiring things that make sense like this, then you're like, you know what? That's great. Let's see what happens and let's be willing to part ways if it doesn't work. It's not personal. It's not an anger-filled thing. You give a guy a shot, see what happens. Uh, So hopefully that discussion was something that illuminated a lot of light into a process, at least on our end here on the GNFP. Alan, any final thoughts on the AD coaching kind of discussion? Yeah, it's kind of funny because maybe this is all moot and we have to revisit this in a year. Could be true. Or halfway through next year. Could be. At least we've already put it out there. All the dominoes. Yeah. So, because there's going to be, if Dan Mullen does get fired, there's going to be a million lists of generated like names and and things like that. So you can kind of sort through. And there's probably some guys we could talk about, right? Mm -hmm. Who might emerge as candidates. But I think we've hit a lot of the obvious ones. Hit the major names, the ones with data, et cetera. All right. Let's do a couple of actual coaching corners here. Back this week uh, on Monday Night Football, last week, the Bears called a timeout with a minute and 30 seconds left to ice the Steelers kicker. It was their last timeout with a minute and 30 seconds left. Do you like this to ice a kicker? You're going to get the ball back. You need that timeout, right? Icing a kicker to me is like negligible. I almost wouldn't do it. I think the data doesn't really support it. It does not. Um, If you you have a feeling on it, who was it that we called like three in a row? Because they had three left and there's like, a game well, kick. there was no time left, right? That's fine right. in that case. You can't take timeouts with you. Try something crazy. Right, if you want to, or not. Yeah. If someone didn't call any timeouts, sure. I don't care. Um, this is, uh, I mean, almost everything the Bears do, I would maybe just blindly take the other side. Yeah, that seems just completely wrong. Hard to find any reason why you would do that based upon the data. And the fact that timeout's like gold. It's like gold in the NFL. You have to have that. All right, the Washington football team. Versus the Bucks, They got a huge upset win yesterday against Tom Brady and crew. They did something that's very interesting. The NFL this year, if you've been watching, Alan, is starting to move slowly but also quickly into using analytics. Washington football team actually employs an analytics guy during the game that buzzes in and gives them recommendations. They don't always follow it, but they followed it here. They were up 10. They took a knee rather than attempting the extra point to maintain their 10-point lead. Now, why would you take a knee after the game? They answered the question dutifully and honestly. Well, if they happen to block the extra point and return it for two, it's an eight-point game. And we felt like with the time remaining in the game, it was almost impossible for them to score twice, so we'll keep it at a 10-point game. This is obviously, to me, the right decision. It makes a lot of sense, and it shows an understanding for expected value and winning percentage. I love that. How about you? Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, again, time is the key factor here, right? Because going to 11 actually... There's a lot of utility in going to 11. Now, other point values going from one to the other, I think maybe taking knee would even make more sense, right? So you had to mitigate against like going to 11 here. But because you could still lose on a field goal plus, you know, touchdown or, you know, tie or whatever. So I, I would not have, that would not have been in my like calculate this out, but I love that they're doing it. And I think it's right, especially if the time on the clock would tell you that it's almost impossible to do it the other way. Yeah, agreed. I think it's the way to go again. I think in general, you want to follow that type of analytics as often as you can, because that gets to be a pretty high percentage difference. Even if you look at it and think, what are the odds they block the extra point? Tiny. There is really no gain from your 11th point there. You're now talking about like they have to get the onside kick. They have to then either get the extra point and a field goal to tie you, all of which is almost impossible time-wise. 
So again, you're playing the odds. All right, lastly, Auburn scores and goes for two against Mississippi State. It's 43-34 at the time. They're down nine. They go for two with 3.37 left to go. Do you like this call? This is a recurring thing we talk about. Do you like them going for two and they didn't have to go for it just yet? They could have put this themselves is like down the expected, eight instead. Yeah, that we're gonna get we're gonna do it in advance rather than later. Yes, yes. I guess the numbers are telling them to do that. It does make sense numbers wise if you have two options remaining, if you have to go for two twice, that if that that's the way to go. Yeah, it's interesting because you start going into like some of the human element of getting it versus not getting it, which I haven't right. really thought through that well. Now the mm-hmm. the extra point in the knee has no like momentum value or right. whatever. It's just about like mm-hmm. clock preservation. Score management does matter. Also, what what's happening narratively in the game matters. I don't know if I'm like informed enough on this one to feel strongly about it either way. Yeah. So so this is this is. I think you have to kick the extra point here because you're down you're down nine. It's the rule of scores in reverse, sure. right? So I think here you make the extra point, you go down eight, and you make that eight pointer. What oftentimes happens is teams will go for two, as we saw the Eagles do when they're down 14 or something to give themselves a chance to win, or they're down, you know, a number that's already two scores. But in this case, you brought yourself to one score. And the benefit that you got was that if you scored again, you kicked the extra point. Here's the momentum part you just talked about. Well, now you've just basically taken your team and you've just like gut punched them. Now they're down two scores. They weren't down two scores. Now they're down two scores. And the benefit, if you get it is, okay, now we're down an extra point. That's a minute, tiny benefit. In that situation. So I think this one, again, is different than the one that JT Raymond loves to talk about all the time, which is if you're going to go for two, go for two twice rather than once. But that's not this situation. It's close to it because they were down nine. So I would I would love to know what the reasoning was here. I think mentally it puts your team basically out of the game for very little benefit. So I think it's a misunderstanding of risk and reward in that case from Auburn. They wind up losing blowing a 28 point a 28 to 3 lead in a wild game we'll talk more about that in a second we're driven by the search for better but when it comes to hiring the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all don't search match with indeed indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
All right, let's read off some patrons. Alan, why don't you go throughout this list? I'll go through the second half. Thanks to all of you who have joined. Most of you on this list started in late 2018, early 2019 with us and have been supporting ever since, and we are oh so appreciative. All right, let's name off some. Charles Gear, Ken Phelps, Tony Gamichia, Don Bergeron, Aaron Jeter, J- Jonathan Levy, Paul Wexler, Hilary Spiewak, Brian Uzdyke, Michael Hammer, Adam and Ginny, Brett, Jason Johnson, Dan Dorman, Alexander Chavers, The Chef Gator, Achi Jones, Alan Horn, Jared, Bill Lewis, Cody Alsup. Why don't you take it from there? Sure. Brad, Terry Greenberg, Number One Gator, Jonathan Leonard, James Smith, Patrick Moore, the Patrick Moore, there you go, Mr. Love Up himself, Tile Krask, <laughs> that's right, Brandon Davis, Johnny Wishbone, Nick Porterfield, Jonathan Weistel, could be other things too. Sorry, Jonathan. Justin Widenfield or Winnenfield, Derek Newton, John Geiger, MCNK, Brant Fleming, Corey Costello, Joe McCann, Stacy, Carl J. King, Mike Marino, and Bobby Cooper. And then coming right down the path here, Fearless Leader 7, Pete Kelly, Siraj H., Joshua Fowler, Nicholas Dunn, Cody Jordan, and Samuel Elliott. Thanks to all of you for supporting the show. Of course, it means the world to us. It also means the world to us that BetUS is supporting <laughs> our show this year. Thanks, Thanks to BetUS, Bet of course. So if you're looking for a sports book to hop in on, as we recommend each and every week, visit BetUS.com and use our promo code GNATION125 or GNATION200. They are in our show notes. You'll get a nice, healthy bonus, more than matching your dollar contribution into your BetUS account. And you're also supporting our show as BetUS supports us with a hundo bomb each time one of you signs up, which is awesome. So visit BetUS.com and sign up today. All right, games we picked last week recap. Alan, you beat me. You went 6-5. and five. I went 5-6. and six. A lot of these games were decided by one point. Very close. And the spread's really close week. That puts you to a seven and six, 70 and 65 record, which is great to be positive against the spread. Really good stuff. And I am at a 66 and 69 record as we head down the finishing stretch. Can you get above 500 here, James? I'm planning on it. All right. UNC went on the road against Pitt. You picked Pitt wisely. Pitt did win 30-23. It was a six-point spread. I was off by one. Yeah, betting on Pitt in real life is a fool's errand, but it worked out for me this time. Yeah, nice one. But great season by Pitt this year. Yeah. Uh, Michigan went on the road against Penn State. Penn State was a one-point favorite. Michigan wins 21-17. A good win for Jim Harbaugh. Yeah, this felt like a very winnable game for Michigan. This might represent their ceiling, though. Um, I think so. Yeah, I don't see a real path forward them if Ohio State's going to play it the way they did. Now, again, they can lay Ohio State can lay an egg, but if they look like they did against Purdue, it's over. Oklahoma on the road against Baylor. Woeful day for Oklahoma's wow. offense. Woeful, woeful day. Spencer Rattler saw some time there. That wasn't working. Again, Lincoln Riley, I think, proving he'll try anything to win. He's not, like you said, why do you have to feel locked in if you named a guy as your starter? Just if your starter's struggling, switch it up a little bit. Either way, couldn't get it done. They lose 27 to 14. The storyline of the game afterwards, besides the fact that Baylor beat Oklahoma for the first time in a long time, was the field goal at the end of the game. So basically, Dave Aranda elects to call a timeout, get the field goal unit out there, kick a last-second field goal. There's like Baylor fans around the field. Everybody's already on the field. There's like 5,000 fans in the field. Like it's a really weird scene. And he did it at the end. The game was over. There was no reason to do it. Except he said the Big 12 tiebreaker rules indicate 
point differential. And the extra three points would have helped them. Lincoln Riley was not buying this and was quite upset with that decision. Not just solely because they hit the field goal, like you mentioned, because it was a madhouse. There were already students and people all over the field. It was a really bizarre scene. Your thoughts on this? On one hand, I love it. On the other hand, you got to know what kind of hoarders that you're starting out here potentially because they, they'll probably have to play them again, potentially, if the, both of them make the Big 12 title game. And I don't know if that will happen, but so, yeah, I don't know. It's either going to work out for them great or terrible. I don't know. But the point differential thing is legit. It is legit. And I can tell you right now, if I was a coach, I would never complain about anyone scoring on me at the last second ever for any reason. There's time on the clock. It's a football game. If someone likes to score on you, good for them. I'm not going to go out there and say, I believe in sportsmanship and but I'm just not going to say Especially if you're like a conference opponent. Now, if you're playing... Someone overmatched, say, like Samford or something sure. in your build. Sure, sure. Then maybe you, <laughs> you call off the dogs, right? But yes, I think in general, even if I didn't think I would have done it as an opposing head coach, I'm just not going to call someone True. out for scoring on my team. I'm telling my players, listen, you don't want them to score. Stop them. Agreed. It's a football game. We're not going to be a team that whines about this stuff. So I don't love that look from Lincoln Riley. All right, Mississippi State. And the ever entertaining and glorious Mike Leach in the midst of an incredibly great season goes on the road to Auburn. They go down 28 to three. Things don't look so great. They score 40 unanswered points to win this football game. And it's kind of wild when that area gets going, it gets going. Bo Nix, I believe, broke his leg at some point in this game. Broke his ankle. Yeah, late in the third or early in the third. Uh, there's some crazy Bodnick stuff. Like, you know, if you look at his QBR chart, it's like a graph of like an earthquake going up and down. Yeah. I don't know. Weird result. Auburn always has weird results, I think, but great win by Mississippi state. I mean, if you're Derek Mason, it doesn't matter if Auburn stops scoring at the rate of Bonix is hurt. You're going to expect a drop off a little bit probably, but you, you almost can't let them do that. I would think. And they weren't for so long. And it kind of felt like a game where, oh, yeah, it's Mike Leach again, like air raiding. And I love the air raid. It's my favorite offensive concept. No real running game, air raid, etc. And then, as you mentioned, if they start to figure out what you're doing defensively, that's why the air raid is a cheat code. Because they're going to two-on-one you the entire game somewhere. And they were killing them. But Derek Mason, I think it's safe to say, is going to be on a very short leash after this season. A lot of Auburn fans are not loving what this defense has been putting out there this year. Despite some good performances, this one, this one well, hurts. It's a little bit that old school one where you don't adapt. If what you're doing Correct. is working, you look good. But if it's not, yes, it what gets are you static do? on the back end. It gets simple, and that hurts. And Auburn was sort of up 28 3, feeling pretty good. We've been talking about their program trending in a nice direction. Ooh, that's a tough loss there. All right, UJ on the road against Tennessee. Lane Kiffin picked Tennessee to win this game. Quite ambitious, of course. I think he's just giving a nod to the former school he coached at. But he does love Heupel's offense, as do I. And this offense gave Georgia more problems than anyone else has by far. This game In was the first quarter. Yes, but even further, Tennessee drove a lot, got stopped on third and short. I thought their game plan was good, that they were necessarily aggressive. There were throws to be made, picks, bad picks, overthrowing open receivers. I think it proved the concept that this style of spreading a team very far east-west can be very effective, especially against a team that plays so much zone like Georgia. But all that matters, Alan, is what you said. Georgia did adjust. 
They came out of their too high shell defense. They began to play more cover one. They forced Tennessee to beat them. Tennessee could not do it. They wind up getting a big win. Stetson Bennett had a really good game for him. He ran the ball successfully, uh, and they win 41-17. And, as B-Red says here, it was a flu game for them. So a lot of Florida fans had asked us, should we just kind of erase that game Florida had against South Carolina because of the flu? George had a bunch of dudes missing games and playing with the flu, and they were able to go on the road and get a huge win over a good opponent. So, you know, generally, no, not an excuse. It's a good win for Georgia. That Tennessee team is dangerous. And that first two drives, it looked like, man, they might do something to him here. And they really put the clamps on him. Yeah, I mean, 41-17. This is 41-10. They score late. Correct, as teams will do against them. But that's a great win given how the game started it shows you the character of georgia purdue on the road against ohio state ohio state wins 59 31 covering that 20 point spread that and they close. just put them out yeah mm-hmm. they crushed them put them out yep ohio state looking better and better now again maybe the most talented team in all of college football this year also one of the youngest but player for player extremely talented football team number 20 minnesota goes on the road against iowa iowa gets a win a bounce back win 27 22 but they do not cover the spread giving you a win by picking minnesota there you go yeah i mean number 20 versus number 22 this feels like expected result right yeah coin flippy for sure pj fleck a guy who had a lot of momentum was a good hire by minnesota kind of tough to figure out minnesota's just hard i feel like you're gonna be up and down with them you are right that's why it's tough to figure out kind of what happens where do you go miami on the road at florida state florida state with a comeback win in the fourth quarter something miami had been doing could not do it here they win 31 28 is this a good win for florida state i think so i i mean yes yes definitely it is i mean miami I follow some Miami fans on Twitter and they were like just kind of in disbelief how they gave up the game at the end. Kind of crazy. So bad loss for Miami as much as it is. Not because FSU is so bad or they're so much beneath them, but the way they gave it up at the end. Yeah, I think it's clear that Florida State is getting better each week. They're definitely a far more competent and competitive team. Still plenty of issues, obviously, but a far cry from where they were when it looked like, man, are the well, wheels they totally lost off? Jacksonville State. Jackson State, Jacksonville State. It was conceivable they would go over the season. Obviously, they've turned it around. They've turned it around, yeah. All right, Maryland, the fighting Maryland Terrapins, went on the road against the fighting Chester Kimbrough's, and the Chester Kimbrough's get an easy win, 40-21, covering their 13 points. Yeah, that's you a good and I win. both had that one. Yeah, that was a good win for them. Those are wins you have to have if you want to have good seasons. Maryland yeah, because Michigan State is theoretically in a place where they could lose to a Absolutely like right. The talent difference there is not significant, and that's what I think will help display kind of coaching differences. All right, number 19, NC State, having a nice season themselves, goes on the road to Wake Forest, and shame on me. I picked Wake Forest every single week mm-hmm. every single week and i was like you know what i think it's going to be close and i'll take nc state with two points on the road and it was close wake forest wins 45 42 what yep. a what a season by wake forest i love it i love it it's too bad they lost oh. just the, not that they would mean they're any better or worse right no. they're still who they are just a great story but just them riding that Unbeaten momentum wave would have been really fun. No, that's fantastic. Yeah. All right. Number 14, AM. Shocker of the week, I think, with how this went down. On the road against Old Miss. And the shocker was that although AM's offense has not been great, it's been good at times. It's been up and down. It was utterly just shut down by an Old Miss defense that had not been shutting anyone down. Had been showing improvement. They were getting better. They were holding teams to lower totals, but this was a pretty great result for them on a day where the Old Miss offense struggled 
against a very game A&M defense. It's weird. You know, that A&M offense that played against Alabama, looking like that was just an all-time outlier in terms of what Zach Calzada is able to produce. Because his Ole Miss defense is good. Like you said, they're solid. They're better than they have been. But shouldn't be able to totally put the clamps on you in the entire game. They did it, though. Good win. Some defensive it. stops late, too. Big win. Big win there. All right, the bonus pick. Finally, it happened. <laughs> it's like that song. Finally, it happened to me. Kansas went on the road to Texas. Texas was favored by 29 and a half points. And you thought, Alan, I will go opposite of James and take Texas, which was a good pick. But finally, my first time in 11 tries, I got it done. Kansas gets the outright win wow. covering the spread. And wow is right. That was the first road Big 12 win for Kansas since the mid-2000s. It was the first win ever at Texas. Does Texas fire Sarkeesian in year one? I don't know. I mean, this is crazy. So I would not have never picked Texas as a 30-point favorite. I actually like Kansas's coach, Lance Leipold. Leipold. Um, I thought that was a good hire by them. But I only had just to go opposite you. That was the only right, of course, which was smart. That was smart. But B Red wants to know who would you rather be, UF or Texas? Oh, UF for sure. Because they're Texas. on year four rather than year one of yes. Sarkeesian. Yeah. yeah. I mean, ooh. Plus, they hired Sarkeesian, which at the time we were both, no, not. No, he'd failed his test everywhere he had been. I don't care that he was a great OC. I think to me he's, he's an OC. That's what he is. And ooh, that was not an exciting hire for me trouble out there in texas all right daytona steve gets his lock right kansas handily beats michigan state in basketball good work for him he's now four and six on the season on locks he's riding a heater with his locks three and one in his past four weeks parlays both miss because of the oklahoma game primarily uh not covering that five and a half against baylor so he's now zero and 12 on parlays but don't worry daytona steve there's still a season left continue to hit the dog track and shake things up all right, a little bit SEC roundup. We didn't pick this game, although we should have in hindsight. Arkansas holds on against LSU, 16-13. to 13. Fun game. Missouri squeaks one out against South Carolina, 31-28. That tells you a lot right there. If you yep. thought South Carolina had turned a corner and was all of a sudden magically good, they lost to a, a team that was equal to them in every way. Right. I mean, that's what they were trending as all year. It's not year. a bad loss for them. No, not at all. No, it's good. That's, that's, that's a, a game you thought they'd play. But now we'll see what Florida does. Texas Tech hits a 62-yard field goal walk-off one to beat my clones. That I mean, from a college kicker, that's unbelievable. Unbelievable. Big upset. I mean, Iowa State was a pretty healthy favorite in this game. And Texas Tech, uh, who had fired their coach, they, they get a signature, a signature win there with, uh, obviously, as you mentioned, a really shocking result for a college kicker to make that one. Washington has fired their coach. We mentioned that. Um this is an interesting note from B-Red. Uh, Miami is going to host a three-and-a-half-hour event with former players about the state of the program, and they're going to release the video of the roundtable. I don't know if that's going to be good for them or not. I don't understand what the benefit of that is at all. Internally, I think if you want to get the feedback from your former players, that, Great. that's a good idea. Super wise. That seems very misguided. I don't know. We'll see. We will see. Okay. Are we finally ready to talk about Missouri here? We are ready. Okay. Florida is not doing very well. They're not doing very well at all. Missouri is five and five. Coming off a win against South Carolina. Elijah 
Eli Drinkwitz, second year, 10 and 10. Um, interesting guy. They're recruiting well right now. I don't think they've had the uptick I thought they were going to have in his second year. But not bad for Missouri. We'll see. The The future is still open for them. Um, they're 46 in, in talent. So big edge to UF. Although, as we've seen, that doesn't always matter. Uh, they had 16 returning starters on offense, right? So the defensive coordinator is Steve Wilkes. He's in his first year. He was the Cardinals head coach. You remember that very briefly in 2018. Um, Drinkwitz is essentially their offensive coordinator as well, kind of in that Malzahn-esque role or Mullen-esque role as well. Drinkwitz comes from that Malzahn tree. We saw we see Missouri every year. We're familiar with this program. Um they were fun last year. They were dangerous and kind of overmatched. They're starting, I think, a freshman he was last year, Connor Basilak. He's playing fairly well this year. I don't know if he's taking the step forward uh, that people thought he might. Um, Tyler Batty's their excellent running back. Gets a lot of carries for them, 1,200 yards, 12 TDs. Leads the team in receptions as well. Um, receivers, two guys have caught a decent amount of balls, Chisholm and Dove. Um they are still who they were mostly on offense last year, correct? Yeah, correct. Yeah. I mean, Florida's favored by eight and a half in this game, which might surprise oh, a lot yeah, of you. Yeah, sorry about that. Missed that. The public the public has has been betting Missouri more heavily than Florida at eight and a half. Perhaps a bigger note here, Alan, is this is not a noon game, meaning eleven AM game. It's a four PM game. And I'm looking forward to seeing how you think that might affect things because I know this was a game you circled before the year. Yeah. Florida's not good against Missouri. It's typically that 11 a.m. kick local time. At least Florida gets this 3 p.m. kick local time. Uh, But as far as Missouri's offense goes, it's a very short passing offense. They rely heavily on yards after catch. They They complete a very high percentage of their passes, but they don't have a very high yards per catch. So again, very yak-oriented offense. Uh, basically, fifty-three pass, forty-seven percent run. They are a better running team than they are a passing team. Just a couple of things they also do well: they allow very few sacks, seventh in the country at allowing sacks, but they throw a lot of picks. So, despite the fact that they get good protection, also the reason they have good protection is they have run a quick game offense, which we talked about. Not a lot of drops past maybe a zero step or a three step. A zero drop in football out of the shotgun is if you take the snap and you don't take any other steps. You're basically running what's called a quick game. If you're outside a quick game, you might actually take a shotgun step and drop back three or set yourself in a pocket or roll the pocket a little. That's a shorter game. And then if you're going to go deeper than that, if you want to go for a, a vertical attack, you might drop back five or seven, right? So they run mostly short game. Balls out quick, kind of a West Coast style offense. Um, and again, Tyler Batty, as you mentioned, is an, an unbelievable workhorse. I mean, he leads a team in targets, leads a team in carries. He carries the ball way more than anyone else does. You will see him on the field everywhere. But their offense, all in all, uh, it's it's struggled against the better teams in the SEC, and it's done fine against equal opposition. As you saw with South Carolina, who's played good defense, 31 points against South Carolina's defense with Missouri's talents, a good result. So I think Missouri is feeling very good coming into this football game, obviously looking at Florida's defense and how their own offense has, has continued to produce against teams like Florida, quite frankly. Okay, so Missouri's defense is just allowing anyone and everyone to run the ball on them. 
249 rushing yards per game. This is the second worst in the country. Not a lot of star power, not a lot of like, you know, they're not really doing anything well because if you if you allow that much rushing yards, it's hard to be competent on the other end as well. Um, well, they do they do two things well. I mean, they they do okay, but they're not enough to like stop you from running the ball down their throat. No, but they no they don't stop the run, but they get a lot of picks and a lot of sacks, which should sound familiar to you, because that's what South Carolina was like. Now, South Carolina was better on the back end than Missouri, but that's very similar report. South Carolina couldn't stop the run. They got a lot of picks and a lot of sacks, and look how that worked out for Florida. Similar setup with Missouri. Missouri plays man 45% of the time. That works well when you're getting pressure and you're stopping the run. It does not work well if you're not stopping the run, obviously. Man is not a helpful run defense. They mostly play cover three otherwise. That should allow... Dan Mullen to craft up what he wants as far as plays that are helpful for Emory. It should allow Emory to throw plenty of hitches, which we saw against Sanford, of course. He throws loves to throw the hitches. But all in all, Alan, if they can stop the run like South Carolina did, you better believe they are going to use South Carolina's game plan. Load the box up, play cover one man, which South Carolina had tons of success doing against Florida. It could be a similar result for Florida's offense. So stay tuned for that one. Yes. You want to run through the categories there? Yeah, special teams, uh, edges to Missouri. Penalties, edge to Missouri. Turnover margin, edge to Missouri. Time of possession, edge to Florida. Here's a big category that you get to read off. Is is anyone coming back from injury this week? Theoretically, Trent Whittemore, AR, and Ethan White. Ethan White's huge, as we've said. Huge is an understatement for what Ethan White has meant to this this running game and this offense. For sure. It's hard to be too excited about anything. Right? I don't know. Um, because against South Carolina, the offense wasn't good. But defensively, there was no chance to win the game because of what, what happened. And so, yeah, I feel like I'm muted for my enthusiasm that, South, that uh, Missouri – can't stop the run. I thought that would tell the tale against South Carolina. It certainly did not. All right. So I'm handling the keys to the game portion here. So why don't you go first? All right. Keys to the game for me. Uh, We'll start with Florida's offense and it's going to be, I'm going to take what we learned from the South Carolina game, which is something we said going into it. Florida had to run the ball well to win the game. They did not. They threw the ball for a decent amount of yards. That's not going to work for Florida because Emory Jones is too limited to consistently pass the football, in my opinion. Therefore, if Florida wants to win this football game against South Carolina, they're going to have to rush for 225 yards or more. They don't even need 250 or 260 or 270. They need 225, which should be enough to allow Florida to convert third and shorts and to allow Emory to basically complete the passes he wants to complete. It really disgusts me. I'm even saying that Emery's the one completing the passes he needs to complete, but that's the world we live in. On defense, <laughs> do we have a defense? Do they play defense? Do they try to tackle anyone? I have none, but we could pick anything. How about stop somebody, do something? I have no hope for what's happening here at all. Uh, we will, I will, not we will, I will choose to go with allowing less than I mean, I don't know what it's going to take to win here, Alan. I'm going to say allowing less than 400 yards of offense, which is ridiculous that I'm going to put it that high. 
but I'm going to say they have to allow less than 400. If they allow less than 400, I think Florida can win the football game. That's a lot of offense, theoretically, out of this Missouri team. But that's it. That's what I'm going with. Yeah, I don't think I've been really sad about the Florida performance until I just got to this portion right here. (laughs) It's like I don't even want to pick a key to the game because I don't. It's like, is the is the team going to even show up and play defensively? If yeah, not, that, this is an exercise in futility. It us is. talking about keys to the game. It's sort of a joke right now that we're doing it because we there's nothing reliable to anchor to. I'm going to go, but I'll stay similar to you. I, I like the rushing categories, right? So yards per carry over four. <laughs> it's a low bar. I love yeah. it. This is where we are. Yes. Defensively, I don't know. Don't suck terribly. Let's do that. Don't suck terribly. It's uh, it's subjective, but I like it. It's got a nice ring to it. It just is hard because I mean, <laughs> there can Florida win this game? Absolutely. They can also completely no show it. Completely no show. They could. And now it is prediction time, and you get to go first. I mean, I, I can't in good conscience pick Florida to win this game. Um, Let me just run the South Carolina score. Well, I don't even remember really what it was. 40 to 21? Uh, I think that's, you know, it's funny. I can't remember what it was either. I'll go 40-21. That feels, yeah. Yeah, 40-17. I'll go 40-21 South Carolina. Okay. And that's just a sadness pick. 40-21 Missouri. Okay. Yeah. Sorry, did I say South Carolina? Yeah. yeah. Sadness pick. I like this. These are good. This is good for me. Okay. Sadness pick. All right. I like that. Okay. For me, I'm also going to pick a Missouri win. I cannot believe that Florida's favored by eight and a half. It feels like that's like a lock of the week situation. It may not happen. They may win. But I mean, man, oh man, Florida getting eight and a half points when they're in the midst of what looks to be quitting. In a large way, shape, or form, all the things we talked about being at play, I mean, come on. Missouri's still in the thick of things for themselves. Drinkowitz still trying to win, still trying to compete. Florida's still a team you want to beat. You want to put that on your resume, even if we're in in the midst of a total chaotic scenario. So I think Missouri gets it done. Florida's defense is absolutely horrible. I imagine South Carolina scoring 40 will be somewhat similar to what, you know, Missouri does to us. I'm going to go 35 in this one, and I'm going to say that Florida scores um, 24. So I think Florida loses 35-24. I don't think I don't think we've seen Emory be able to score more than that against a competent team. So it feels like that's about right somewhere in there. Ethan White, I think, gives us that point boost. I think Missouri wins as well. So, so I mean, yeah, the I picked this. I think this is a tough place to play. I was projecting Missouri to be way better. And then midway through the season, we both I flipped to Florida winning because Missouri just had shown they could not stop the run. Florida was running the ball at an extremely impressive rate. So it seemed like that's a slam dunk. That one category alone would tell you the story, right? If you're the worst in the country at something and the other team is the best in the country at something, well, you don't really need to know anything else. But now with with what the team put on the field, I think that's why that just lets you into like how bad of an effort that was that you have 42 points in the first half. Like, what are you capable of? Could you give up 100? Is that reasonable? Now, again, Florida could come out and win this game. I don't know what it really does for them. 
right? Because then they still have to go play FSU. And that all of a sudden is a very scary game. And I, you know what? Even if Florida's in the dumpster, I would like us to beat FSU because I hate that, right? I hate losing to them. But it's just in a, the program's in a weird place. This doesn't have any of the juice of that rivalry. I don't think they show up for this game. Feels bad. You're flying halfway across the country into a team that that gets a win over a team that crushed you. There's a lot of like momentum wise with college players. There's a lot on Missouri side. There's not a lot on Florida side at all. I mean, you should have a ton of pride. And maybe Christian Robinson gets privately demoted, but that hasn't been Dan Mullen's mo. Highly doubt it. He's gonna. I, th- I think again for me, I think he knows he's fired. He's gonna ride his loyalty card out the window, and he's gonna ride some losses with it, and that will be the gift he gives to Florida. All right, we will see. Walk us through the upcoming games that are not the Florida game this week. Right, and B-Red notes here's the SEC Cupcake Week. Not for us, obviously. Right, we we traded spots with that with the Sanford game with the way the schedule shook out. But you won't see a lot of SEC teams on this slate. So, Iowa State at Oklahoma. Won't give out the rankings again because the CFP hasn't come out. But now defeated Oklahoma, favored by four. Tough one here. Iowa State's been playing everyone tight and tough. Oklahoma just has not looked right all year. I wouldn't bet on this game. I'm going to take Oklahoma, but I don't love it. I'll go clones. I think just that some of that shine is off Oklahoma. You know, they theoretically had the playoff in front of them, maintain that unbeaten streak. I think some of the wheels might come off here. All right, number 12, Wake Forest. I gave the I gave the ranking. Who knows what they are actually at Clemson? Clemson favored by three and a half. Let's go, Wake Forest. Let's go. Get that feather in your cap. I don't care that Clemson's terrible this year. That'd be an all time win for Wake Forest to have. I, I agree. I don't feel good about them winning again. When if you're Wake Forest and you're playing everybody with basically like a coin flip, it's hard to like feel good about it unless the other team is just nasty bad and Clemson's shown that this year and work Forest has been able to put up points so that that's the reason i'm going there all right arkansas at alabama alabama favored by 20 and a half i think this is a bad matchup for arkansas this season again what sam Pittman has done at arkansas is nothing short of remarkable another coach who was an assistant who got promoted directly to that job wild card kind of hire nailed it but i think bama takes this one i'm gonna go arkansas here i think they're gonna give alabama problems um, they gave him problems last year. Maybe Alabama comes out and strafes them. That's a pretty big possibility, but I, I like that 20-point line there. All right, a great game here. SMU, some of the biggest competition here for Cincinnati. Cincinnati favored by 12. That's a lot. 12 is a lot. The way Cincinnati's been playing, they've mm-hmm. not been playing well. SMU, very game on offense, well-coached football team. I think if Cincinnati had been playing better, I would have gone SMU. I think Luke Fickle knows. He's he's telling his team, look, the playoff's in front of you. It's right there. If you want to make it, we have to start crushing teams. Like We have to play start to finish extremely well. We have no margin for error, so I think they get over this 12-point mark. I'll go SMU. I think this game's going to be close. I would still pick Cincinnati to win straight up. Michigan favored by 15 at Maryland. So another tester week. We saw Michigan State pass the test. Will Michigan pass the test against Maryland? Favored by 15? I think so. I don't believe in anything Mike Loxley does. 15's a big number for a Michigan team, though. So I'm going to go Maryland. <laughs> so this just feels like the same game over again. I mean, what's the difference between Michigan and Michigan State? I feel like they're identical. Correct. And they just handled Maryland. So 
Why not Michigan at the summer? I, I think I res- that's interesting. That. That's wise. I think that's wise. I had to make a homer pick at least one time. Florida State on the road against Boston College. Boston College favored by two. You taking over here? You get to yeah. I'm reading these off. Oh, I read it to you. I'm I'm yeah. I'm taking Florida State. I think they've got a little mojo. I'll take BC. Totally homer pick. All right, Baylor minus one at a resurgent Kansas State. I have to like Baylor here. I think that that what Dave Aranda is doing is sustainable. I don't think this is where they kind of let down. I think they amp up. I'm going to go Baylor. Me too. I, this this line shows you, I think, the respect for Kansas State in this game. And if it was any higher, I think I would take Kansas State to keep it close. I think this will be a close game. All right, Auburn favored only by seven at South Carolina. No Bonics in this game. Normally, you might think that'd be a good thing. Typically, because he's so erratic and up and down. But I ugh, horrible loss by Auburn. But I think Auburn takes care of South Carolina by seven. I do too. I I don't like this game. I would not touch it at all. But forced into it, that number's low enough. I think Auburn talent-wise and kind of structurally will be able to handle South Carolina. Oklahoma State, maybe the best bet for the Big 12 to make the playoff. Favored by 10.5 at Texas Tech. Do you believe in the Pokes? I don't think they can. I do. I don't think Texas Tech can do it twice in a row. A sensational upset win. Perhaps they can, but I'm going to take the the proven and true Mike Gundy here. I'll take Oklahoma State here. This number is too high for my liking, though. This could be inside that number. Okay. I do think they will win. But... Texas Tech is a little spunky, even after they fired their coach. It's oh, kind of wild. Very spunky. All right, Oregon at Utah. This could be the first of two games here. Mm-hmm. Utah favored by three. Yeah, I think this. Is, I I don't. We we didn't lean too hard into Crystal Ball. I think he's trending up really well. He recruits really well. I like everything that's happening there. But this this year's Oregon team, they're capable of losing to almost anyone. They're very limited at quarterback. They have a very limited. Transfer. And this Utah team's a good football team who's up and down. I, I feel just my gut tells me Utah's going to get him here. Someone take Utah. I'm with you here. I think Oregon slips up. I just didn't like the way that they've looked the last two weeks. So there you go. It's a little bit anti my them making the playoff. Just the way Utah has been playing. I, I just at Utah feels like a loss to me. Michigan State, I guess, is the game of the day at Ohio State. I don't know what the CFP rankings are, but this will be probably both teams in the inside like the top twelve. And Ohio State's favored by nineteen. Again, a talent on this Ohio State roster is so so good. Nineteen though, I just think it's too much. Alan, I'm going to go with Michigan State and the Fighting Chester Kimbrough's. This is going to be a referendum on how good Ohio State is because they're going to play two of these games here. They're going to play State and then they're going to play Michigan. Man, I think Michigan State keeps it close, too. I'll, I'll go Spartans here. All right, bonus pick, your Texas pick. Texas asked what, at West Virginia. West Virginia only favored by two and a half, question mark. Is this free money? West Virginia. Uh, I can't. Since I have my I'm on a winning is, streak here. So my streak is broken. Yeah, yeah. So I'll, I'll join you here. Yeah, there you go. We're back. We're safe. We're, te- we're actually testing it with this bonus game to see if like the monkey's really off my back or not. <laughs> Okay, Daytona Steve. I think actually you're reading this one out. Yeah, Daytona Steve. The three-gamer is West Virginia versus Texas. Good pick, Daytona Steve. I like that one. Wake Forest on the road against Clemson. I like that one too. And Auburn, South Carolina. All right. 
I'm on board. So you're not immediately out on one of those picks. No, I'm in. I'm in on the first time. In fact, through all the parlays, I've been on all three of them. Not that that means it's going to win, but I like that. The prolific parlay has the same West Virginia and Wake Forest bet. It adds UTSA. I like that one too. First UAB. Missouri at Florida. I like that one. Louisiana at Liberty. That's tough. Louisiana, Louisiana has played a lot of close games. I don't know. I love that one. UTEP versus Rice. Baylor, a pick them at Kansas State. I like that. And Auburn, South Carolina. I like this one too. The prolific parlay, actually. I might bet this one, Daytona Steve. I might put some some shillings on this one. It's shillings. It's it's a 175 to 1 shot, but I like that one. The lock of the week is Wake Forest at Clemson plus three and a half. I don't I don't like that as a lock. That seems crazy, but I love that you're on the Wake Forest train. So fun picks there from Daytona Steve this week. Okay, it's now time for a little basketball discussion. And actually, I'm more looking forward to this part of the podcast than I have in the last few years. But I'm really excited to talk about this basketball game. And of course, we have our very talented, very illustrious basketball correspondent. You know, he's not an insider anymore, but someone who follows the team closely, knows a ton about basketball in general, and we'd love talking to him about it. So maybe we'll get his most opinionated self coming out this year. Justin Seitz. Welcome, as always. Thank you. It's good to be back with you guys. Always a pleasure to talk hoops. Here we go. It's this time of year again. Let's do it. So this is a weird year for the Florida Gators. I follow this program as closely as most people, I think. And coming to the year, I was like, I know nothing about this team. I don't know any of the guys we took in transfer, which is a lot. So much of the team has experienced a huge turnover. A lot of guys left. A lot of guys came in. I had no idea what to expect from this team. And I think, you know, that's kind of emblematic of what's going on right now in college basketball in general. Yeah, I think to talk about the Gators, you first have to talk about college basketball. And college basketball and college athletics in general have a little bit of an identity crisis going on. Um, This I would term the transfer era of college basketball. You know, growing up with me, I watched guys who would stay for four years and then go on to the NBA. I mean, it's hard to believe that Tim Duncan stayed at Wake Forest for four years. Then you live through the one-and-done era where, uh, or actually before that, the guys just jumping straight from high school into the NBA, and then you had the one-and-done era kind of dominated by Cal and Kentucky. Now you're in this new era where you're kind of patchworking teams together with uh, freshmen and transfers, especially now that transfers don't have to, to sit out. So... There's going to be a lot of turnover and you have to get to know your team uh, and and do the effort to get to know them each year. And hopefully I can help in that area. So let's let's do, let's give this a name. I was thinking about this over this past week because obviously I have been pretty vocal about the fact that in the previous era, I think Mike White would have failed any test that would have shown you he was going to be good enough. Good recruiter. Uh, a guy who can seemingly bring talent onto the roster, but hasn't been able to coach or develop or run an offense. Is it possible that we're in this sort of maybe a NBA GM era where you have a lot of roster turnover each year and you're taking players perhaps that have already been developed somewhere else and you're just putting a roster together? It's like a free agency recruiting. And if you can get the right roster together, that's half of winning in basketball. Is that potentially something that's happening with this Florida team in your eyes? Yeah, I think it's it's definitely different and we'll have to evaluate teams and coaches maybe a little bit differently now. And you know, looking at college basketball again in in like in the 30,000 foot level, you 
have Roy Williams retiring from North Carolina, Coach K in his last year at Duke, Tom Izzo probably following soon at Michigan State, Jim Beheim, Syracuse, and you have now these voids to fill by young coaches, and it, you know, we're trying to figure out who the next big coaches are going to be. And I do think, you know, Mike White in his time here at UF, I'd think of it this way in that Billy Donovan handed him the keys to a, a luxury vehicle. And now he's kind of just traded it in for like a Honda or something. It's, it's a good car, I guess. Um, it probably won't break down on you and it'll be somewhat reliable. And, that's kind of been his MO so far. Uh, and it's going to be interesting to see if he can succeed in this era where he, um, he recruits some, but also fills in the roster with more experienced guys who have been coached by others. Um, and maybe he's not going to have to lean on uh, his on-court acumen as much where he can take players who have already been developed and like you said, be more of a manager and a leader with them. Okay, let's talk about this team, though. I got to watch them play both games in person, Elon and then Florida State on Sunday. And I got to say, I've loved what I've seen from this team. I was excited by the Elon game. And then we came out on Sunday and took it to FSU, a team that just big boyed us the last seven years. This is a different kind of team. Every guy we brought in transfer is like a kind of a beast physically. And then you add that to Colin, Colin Castleton looking like the second coming of the Kimbe Matumbo out there swatting every shot. This team played with a lot of intensity, a lot of effort, and they looked not like high level offensively, but they looked like they knew what they're doing. They're pushing the pace, trying to get quick buckets. They looked fantastic, really. Mm-hmm. Thoughts on this team in particular and some of these new guys that Mike White's brought in? Yeah, I think this is the most physical uh, kind of gritty team that you've seen from UF so far under the Mike White era. And I think, you know, going, I was excited to come talk to you guys today um, and be kind of give my optimism about this team, but they kind of let the cat out of the bag uh, yesterday when they beat Florida State. But he brought in a lot of guys with experience and a lot of great defensive players too. So I think it's kind of starts with, uh, Brandon McKissick from, he's the transfer from University, of Missouri, Kansas City. Just a strong bulldog of a point guard. He was the uh, defensive player in the, of the year in his conference. Uh, they also went out and got an experienced scorer, Myron Jones from Penn State, who played big minutes in the Big Ten, which is, you know, arguably with the best basketball conference going right now and, you know, average 15 to 16 points a game. So he'll be the the guy who can probably score most consistently out of the newcomers. Uh, a guy that I like as well is Flanders Fleming. Uh, Great name. <laughs> the best name in college basketball. He's uh, He was also the defensive player of the year in, in his conference at uh, College of Charleston. Um, I think he'll have to learn a little bit how to play at, at this level, but he's very skilled as well. And then uh, as far as the transfers go, you also round out the field with C.J. Felder, who is the Boston College transfer, a real athletic 6'8", 6'9", four, very uh, physically uh, impressive. Mm -hmm. He didn't get much minutes against Florida State, but um, also just another body that you can have out there. And then uh, those those are the 
the main new faces that you'll see most. Um, we did get a few freshmen too, uh, led by Kwesi Reeves, the high four star out of Georgia. More of a project, long, lengthy, athletic wing. Now, Justin, it seems like the new the new you know NCAA where you have, kind of have a coach Cal who was in the tweener, let's call it the tweener NCAA, where he was taking a bunch of freshmen that were highly heralded. He has not won a lot of championships with that, right? Just one on on the record. And, and they've been progressively worse the last couple of years. And they've been getting worse and worse. And on top of that, now you look at this team. This team, it's safe to say, right, has a ton of experience. You're plucked from various places, but a lot of actual on-court experience. And right out of the gate, they seem to be cohesive. They seem to be playing well as a team. But Florida's only really playing six guys. Is that something you think is going to continue throughout the year, or is that because it's early and you're going to kind of give more minutes to the guys you think can get it? Like, is there a developmental plan to add more, or is this going to be an NBA team that plays six guys and your seven, eight, nine guys only get maybe four or five minutes a game? Yeah, well, I mean, to talk about this Florida basketball team, you know, we've kind of haven't really talked much about Colin Castleton yet. So, uh, you know, preseason first team SEC uh, player and. You know, everything's gonna, gonna work through him. So I think as far as minutes go, they're just find ways to spell him a little bit. Also been impressed with Anthony Deruji to start the year. Um, but no, it's a deeper team than, than you, than you think. It's, it'll, he'll go more than six. Uh, he'll spell Castleton at times with the Jatobo, Jason Jatobo, who is, who has, has put himself into playing basketball shape. Um, who'll be able to help. CJ Felder will help off the bench. Uh, I think the freshman Kwesi Reeves will eventually get minutes. So I think it can go as deep as eight or nine, but I kind of honestly prefer probably the seven to eight man rotation in college basketball is something that coach K has done for the past several years. And, um, I, I, I kind of, I prefer that. I think Mike White has been a little off in his substitution patterns at times. And so I prefer kind of the smaller bench. Um, but yeah, I mean, you alluded to Coach Cal too, and kind of not having as much success with the one and done recently, and that's why I think Mike White is just such an interesting test case. And you know, it's hard to say like fire Mike White because I, I do believe that objectively we've been good. Um, I know people at Florida want great at times, but um, one twenty three and seventy five over his six seasons here. Um, he's only, he's one of six teams to win a game in the past four NCAAs. Um, however, just if you follow the program closely, the style of play has not looked good, um, offensively specifically. And we really just haven't contended to win an SEC championship or really, um, besides the run in his second year, go deep, uh, past the first weekend of the NCAA tournament. So it's kind of like we're in this middle ground of, of figuring out, is is this good enough? Um, and and I think it's interesting too, where you know comparing him to others like Leonard Hamilton, for example, who we played yesterday. Leonard Hamilton has been at FSU for twenty seasons now, and he did not have an NCAA berth until his seventh season. And now I would consider FSU to be a top ten basketball program in the nation. Um, you also look at guys like Scott Drew, a totally different scenario. Him taking over Baylor while they were under probation, but never really won a Big 12 and now has obviously won the national championship last year with Baylor while bringing in uh, transfers and freshmen and using it in this in this new kind of way. 
Yeah, I think I think that's the key, and this will be a discussion we follow throughout the season. But you know, fire Mike White. A lot of you are on board with that. I've been on board with that. But I do think that what Justin is saying here is merited. If you have a regime change based upon rules and based upon the system, it's no longer the same environment. So I think even me, who's like, hey, fire Mike White, you look at a team this year and say, okay, well, if this is the new NCAA college basketball landscape and this is what we're dealing with, you kind of have to perhaps get rid of the old tests because they're not going to apply because it's not the same landscape. And it does require new ideas, just in which I think you mentioned. And this season, I think, will tell us a lot about perhaps how this works. Do you or I or others change their mind about Mike White based upon how he looks with a team that he's sort of GMing rather than developing and coaching? And obviously he has an extremely talented player in Castleton and some other pieces that he seems to have wisely surrounded himself with. As a basketball question, is there anything different you're seeing on the floor from Mike White? We've come on each year and talked about how Florida's offense just at times looks like it doesn't run an offense. What's happening this year? Yeah, stylistically, we we do look different as well. So I think you have to give Mike White credit there, maybe some of the new staff that he's brought in. So that's that's a new thing. He's uh, brought in two new assistants, uh, Eric Pastrana and Akeem Miskdeen. They're both younger guys, mainly known for recruiting. But, um, but he has made some changes, primarily offensively. And, you know, it's, it is hard to tell, too. Is, does the offense look better because we brought in older guys who know how to play, who've been coached and, and know how to play at this level? Or, you know, is Mike White developing as a coach? Which I think is also a reason why you have patience with some coaches is because they can develop, um, you know, just like the example with Leonard Hamilton and Scott Drew. So, but yeah, mainly offensively, I've seen a lot different. We're definitely utilizing our strengths, trying to work through Castleton and it's been primarily through a five-out offense. So um, last year, we did a little bit more four around one, so kind of Castleton in the post, which at times kind of makes it hard for driving lanes uh, to be available. But here in this in this five-out, it's been a lot more free-flowing, a lot of NBA concepts. Um, so Castleton can get the ball on, um, or they'll throw the ball to the wing, and go run a stagger screen on the on the other side so that's like Castleton and another guy setting a screen for um a guard coming up uh and then the the guard can come through the stagger or over they're also running kind of things that the NBA would call out of the pinch post so giving the ball to Castleton at the high post elbow area on the weak side and trying to run action off him um there's also things like you'll see uh, a guard will go screen another guard into a ball screen and a dribble handoff. Um, so a lot of some NBA concepts that, that I've seen that I really haven't seen uh, in Mike White in the past. So the offense looks good. I mean, especially against Florida State, a team who likes to slog things up which, to score 71 points. We got a lot out of transition, but... Um, that's been an area that I've been very impressed by. And then defensively, we've just been so much better. And I think that's just based off of personnel. Well, one thing I liked is that we pushed the pace. Now, whether that's players or coaching directive, especially Appleby was moving the ball forward, either through a pass or dribble. And we were getting looks at the rim, missing some of them because of Florida State's length, but then cleaning them up because people were in transition. I think we want to get as many transition buckets as possible. We were also playing... A nice little three-quarter trap kind of defense. 
the more aggressively forward this team was, the better they played. I really liked it. Um, and, you know, I think we would have beaten Florida State more handily. We just weren't hitting shots in the first half. A lot of decent looks from three and that none of them went down. I was really, really pleased. But as you said, I think this team's calling card is going to be defensively. I think they could be really special there. Um, yeah, and I'm hopeful that that's going to translate all through the year. So, yeah, knowing all that, what do you think the ceiling of this team is? Yeah, like I said, I was I was optimistic about this team going into it. And, you know, we've seen two data points so far with the Elon game and Florida State. There's also a third. They had a secret scrimmage against North Carolina uh, in the offseason here or right here before the season in Gainesville. And um, from all accounts, looked really good in that, too. Um, so I do, you know, I think... Well, you mentioned earlier, Alan, there in the Florida State game, we didn't hit as many shots, and we we probably could have widened the gap um, and beat them by even more. But that'll be an issue that I see throughout the the year a little bit. There'll be some inconsistency scoring. We don't have like a Trey Man NBA type guy who can just go get you a bucket at the end of the shot clock. But you know, if we are running better stuff and we can go through Castleton and maybe be more reliable, um, hopefully that'll be. Uh, the solution to solve that problem. Um, I, I, if I were a national writer or something like that, and I was going to pick a sneaky team to challenge in the SEC, I would, I probably would pick Florida. A lot of the pundits put them at like five or six in the SEC. I think they're better than that. Uh, it remains to be seen, but if I were to guess, I would have them, you know, competing towards the top, maybe like in the second or third range. Um, with, I still think Alabama is probably the best team in the SEC. All right, before I get to your tourney prediction, I want to walk through a couple of stats from the Florida State game because, as you mentioned, Alan, the dominance of Florida State over Florida in basketball for the past many years has been frustrating, to say the least, and it has been dominant. In this game, several things, I think, stick out. One, number of shots taken, right? If you want to reduce basketball down to a very simple formula, if you are out shooting your opponent, 10 to 12 to 15 shots a game, you're going to win a lot of basketball games. Florida State got up 52 shots. Florida got up 62 shots. So 10 more shots. On top of that, Florida, a team that struggled to rebound well, pulled down 44 boards in this game. 44 boards in this game to Florida State's, how many? 33. So that ran by 11. 11 more rebounds, leading to 10 more shots. And as you mentioned, Alan, lastly, Florida shot 28% from three, eight for 28. And Florida State shot almost 50% from three at seven for 15. And yet Florida wins this game by a handy 16 points. So there's a lot of reason to believe that if Florida State is in fact going to be good this year, they were ranked 20th, but if they're going to be a good basketball team, this was a dominating performance by a Florida team that did not shoot the ball well. You got Castleton going for 16 rebounds in this game, six blocks. Florida has 10 blocks as a team, good defense. So I think it's it's hard to know now to set that stage sort of if we look at this two this two game data point set it looks great and me coming into the season thinking look Florida again going to be mediocre again we're going to be maybe we win one or two at most an attorney like we're just going to be that Honda you mentioned is that what we want to be as a program I don't want to be that but is there reason uh Justin based upon the ceiling based upon maybe the floor based upon the tourney what it looks like is there reason for me to think that your tourney prediction might be more than just a first weekend exit what are you thinking? <laughs> well, no. 
yeah, I, I think I think there's a chance. Um, you know, I, it it is hard to just. I feel like a broken record coming on here the last several years, and and just say, yeah, I think we'll probably end up leaving in the in the first two rounds. Um, but I do like this team, and I and I am more excited about this team than I have been probably for any Mike White team. So I'm cautiously optimistic. Um, I think the Gator Nation will really enjoy watching this team uh, to to out rebound and out physical a Florida State team like that and uh just in general with how Florida State plays is impressive and our team has a lot of heart so I think this will be a team that uh fans really like I think that they're they don't quite have enough talent though to really make a deep deep run but I do think that they could possibly get out of the 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 uh first weekend of the tournament and maybe go to a sweet 16. All right, so is the prediction first weekend? <laughs> give, me, give me, though, like a seed line, which is a better prediction. Yeah, I, I think I think we'd probably be anywhere in the five to eight seed range. Um, if I were to predict, I'd say a, a six or a seven. And sure, why not? We're, we're going to the Sweet 16. Okay, there it is. You heard it, a six or seven seed going to the Sweet 16. That'd be nice. We would take that. Um, I still think, obviously... The the meta story here, Justin, is if that happens next year, we get on the podcast and say, okay, is there a narrative for Mike White to get past that, to get to the upper echelons? And I think if if nothing else from this conversation, perhaps what we're saying is this is a new year. There's new data. It's a new system in basketball. And maybe new coaches are going to have to emerge to handle the environment. We can't just rely on what we've seen for success. It, it's an interesting time, obviously, to be a basketball fan. Alan, you're pointing at me. What do you What do you got? All right, I might be drinking the Kool Aid here and just drunk off that Florida State win because I've watched us get manhandled for seven years in a row. Last year, we got blown off the floor. The game was done in the first five minutes, and I don't know how good this particular Florida State team is going to be. I did no scouting on them, but we looked better in every facet of the game, and I think as these guys come together, they could be really special. Now, again, talent level. It's not the most talented team, but we've seen some of these teams who are very veteran and disciplined and play hard-nosed defense make it far. I mean, that Auburn team that made the Final Four, not the most talented team, but really gritty, timely shooting, great defense, right? This could be a version of that team. I don't know how if it's all going to come together. I think there will be frustrating nights offensively when they can't shoot the ball, but I, there's no reason this team couldn't make like an elite eight final four run. If, if this is like, if four state is who I think they are and we are who we think they are coming off this game again, it's early, 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 I like it. <laughs> but I'm completely hyped about this team right now. What's your prediction then? What's your tourney prediction? Well, I mean, I think again, the tourney is such a fickle mistress, right? But if I'm doing a seed line, I think we can be a, a top four seed line. We could be a three, three very seed. easily. And where are we going? Well, again, that that's all matchup and draw. Uh, but I, your your prediction well, here, you early season. What do you got? I mean, I think an elite eight okay. birth is like really possible. Okay, I like it. You are and once you're in that it. once you're in that stratosphere, I mean, you can go up or down a game and and still be feel really great about sure, it. Sure, sure, that'd be great. I think I think any Florida fan at this point would take an elite eight. But I think the way the season goes, last year we were begging this team to do anything that showed us that they could move up a level, and already I've seen from this team something that will translate all year long if they play defense at that level. And a, and a great recruiting class. 
2022 so far. Yeah, so. It's, it's it's sort of the opposite of football in only a few ways. But Mike White, obviously, not the train wreck that Dan Mullen is with the media and other stuff. And he does pull in talented players and transfers want to play with him. And it felt like right for a moment last year, Justin, you and I talked about this, the program was just ending. Almost the entire roster transferred out and you had no one on it. And you're like, well, just forget it. Like, we're not even going to be able to play basketball. And in comes an entirely new team, basically. Mm. Uh, but there are signs of change. I think that's key. There are signs of change. We've noted them, right? So kind of to circle back and kind of hit the things we talked about. The offense is different. The mentality of how we're playing is different. Again, against Florida State, we played six guys. Really, truly only six guys. That is something Mike has never done. Routinely subbing in ways that are so frustrating. He's playing his best players all the time. He's running his offense through his best players with a system that seems now to have more than just one level of get that person the ball. So early on, there are there are some signs that perhaps there are things that are different that lead Allen to your optimism. Yeah, and I don't want to give Mike White some credit to just the cards that he was handed last year with Keontae going down and still turning that team into a, a team that should have made the Sweet 16 uh, upset by Oral Roberts. And I just think that's a testament to him. And it, you know, kind of just in comparison to Dan Mullen a little bit, Mike White is a guy who's kind of hard to fire in that he has built a program he leads with humility he has character the the players like him you know only if you could just have a little bit more of of the Dan Mullen genius on the actual playing field or 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 court um that would really round him out Mike White to be you know something very dangerous and I think that's something that that's something you can teach a little bit more versus the leadership qualities that maybe lack in, in a Dan Mullen. Yeah, it's a great point. We talk about it a lot. You have to have three or four things as a head coach. It can't just be you're a great X's and O's guy. You can't just be a great recruiter. You have to have all of them to be one of the best. But again, perhaps the biggest the biggest take home here is this is a new, it's truly a new landscape, a new era in college basketball. You did a nice job, I think, Justin, painting that for the Gator basketball fans. This is not the basketball that we grew up with it's just going to be different. And it's going to take a few years, I think, for coaches to emerge. Who's the best at navigating this consistent free agency to kind of fill the gaps on their team, be able to recruit enough talent they actually develop, and then put together a winning product on the court? Uh, it, it's going to be, I think, very difficult for any basketball coach, to say the least. But it does seem like somebody who maybe has a GM caliber skill set of putting together these pieces each and every year is going to get a consistent result and a consistent tourney team. Only time will tell. As always, Justin, our basketball insider and voice of the opener on this show. We say it every year. When you hear those golden tones come on right in the beginning, introducing Alan and I, that is our basketball insider, Justin Seitz. Always great to have you, Justin. Thanks for having me. Okay, so obviously I'm pretty high on the Gator basketball team this season. Maybe some of you guys will clip that out and throw that back in my face when they go sub-500 in SEC play. But as of right now, I'm super hyped. So hopefully you guys enjoyed this podcast. We did a lot on coaching stuff. We'll see how that shakes out in the next couple of weeks. Thanks for being with us. We'll see you guys next week. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. 
Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried and true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com.